So the Grammy Award nominee list came out this week. Does does this mean anything to us? I mean, we look at the jazz, and especially I, I look at the classical ones. I always look at the jazz ones too. I'm kind of interested in what they uh, they're picking, mm. and I'm just like, eh, I don't know. They did pick a few things that we really liked, but uh, again, they get the same artists, you know, every year. I can already predict one or two that are going to win in the jazz category already, just because they pick them every year. I think they only know one player for each instrument. <laughs> it could be. You know what you know what it is though, but I do notice we um on this podcast we we have our favorite artists now too, you know, sure. and we always kind of pick them. But then we're making long end of year lists, so it's not the it's not the same thing, you know. Yeah. I mean, we're not really proselytizing for a particular artist, but there are certain artists that we really uh always try to talk about cuz we like them so much. Yeah. I don't know how they get their consensus there though. It's a little bit strange. I think everybody votes and everybody just votes for the person whose name is familiar. I guess. <laughs> I don't think they actually listen. Just like, uh, you know, when people write reviews, I don't think they really listen to the album half the it time. It seems like they don't, yeah. I don't really like awards for anything. Uh, I like you know? them as, um, not necessarily awards, but I like uh, those lists because it kind of, I can peruse them and because yeah. we now have Deezer and all these um sites, I can sort of, you know, listen to some things I might have missed and see if they're any good or not, something I might want to hear. I always liked like critics poll and then, mm. you know, like listeners poll, you know, the, yeah. you know, people can choose, you know, who they like uh, and have a voice in it just as a way you, to you find. Mean, you mean Downbeat, the magazine? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Just so they can find, uh, you can find new artists that way, you know, right. but as far as like, you know, who wins something yeah, yeah. like that, I, I mean, that, uh, yeah, I don't know. you know, music should kind of be its own reward and getting right. listeners, you know. But uh, but I've always been a bit of a shortlist guy. Like I'm not really interested in who wins, but I want to kind of look at the shortlist because there might be something good on there. You know. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, we'll have our end of the year best yes, list coming soon. So and it's gonna, not, to coming soon. It's going to come, I think, on the well Christmas Day or Boxing Day, <laughs> depending on when mm. you're listening. Yeah. Americans, I don't know if Americans know that Boxing Day is December 26th. Uh, because we live in Japan, we know this because we work with a bunch of British people. <laughs> <laughs> so we get to hear all these um, these uh, traditions from the old country, the old world, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. All right. So there you go. And oh, I didn't mention the classical Grammys because the less said about that, the better. It's a long, long <laughs> list of stuff that it's mostly American. They're very American biased. Yeah. And classical music isn't really inherently an American form, although we have really good music there. But it's not all good. <laughs> you know, they've got to get more. The, 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 most of the best classical music is coming from Europe still. Um, and part of the reason for that is because there are so many countries there, and it's just the, the continental culture, you know? Mm -hmm. So you have all these different things coming from different countries, whereas the United States is only one country, you know? Yeah. And diverse as it is, it still shares a lot, you know? So Europe doesn't really share as much as we think. We tend yeah. to, you know, think of it as this one thing. It's kind of, it's very, very diverse. Well, we've tried to uh, keep this podcast very international in nature. Yeah, we certainly have. And we kind of yeah. tried to keep it also, as, at least in the classical area, and I think in jazz as well. Like I, a lot of people comment to me that um, when they look at the list of composers that we talk about in classical music, they don't know any of them. And yeah. they talk about that as though it's a bad thing. <laughs> I don't see that at all. I mean, part of the problem, part of the issue I think people have with classical music is, oh, who's going to perform this uh, version of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, you know? Yeah. And uh, we're, in, I'm certainly interested in that as well. But I mean, I want people to know that there are all kinds of, there's all kinds of music yeah. and other composers out there that we should be at least aware of. And we're going to hear a few of them tonight, in fact. I think I've read something 
depressing that was like、mm. less than 10% of all the material available on streaming now gets more than 90% of the downloads. You know, so <laughs> yeah. You can listen to anything, but most people are listening to the same thing as other people. And that's what we don't want to do. <laughs> Yeah, but that's what happens to us too, because people don't listen to these new episodes. They, they keep downloading episode 10 for some reason, <laughs> which, which we're up to what episode? This is 89 now? This is episode 90. Oh, 90. We're up to yeah, 90. Oh, wow.、Right. But things back, way back in episode 10, we didn't know what we were doing. Yeah. <laughs> we still don't really know what we're doing, but we know more than we did then. Yeah. And、uh, people are still listening to that and making their judgments on that. And、uh, oh, I don't know. I don't know how to change that. We should go to video, but then we won't know what we're doing on the camera and then we'll look like idiots for a year. And then you know, in, in a, after a year or two, we'll get it right. We have radio faces.、So. We have radio faces. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, after all that preamble to episode 90, it's episode 90 of adult music. This yeah, is a how podcast about with music for the mature mind every week, bringing you six new releases, three classical, three jazz. And hopefully, with a lot of variety and new artists for us to discover, and hopefully, you too. Yep. Certainly have that this week. This week, we got a special kind of German focus going on in general,、yeah. mostly made in Germany. I think that's mostly what we're going to do. Mostly made in Germany. I ruined it. And you, know, <laughs> and you know, you would think that being on the classical end of things here, that I would easily. Put together a German、yeah. program, but、uh, I'm just not listening to a lot of that now. German music is, you know, dominated、mm. the 19th century, and I don't program a lot of it because I feel like we've heard a lot of it already, although,、right. you know, there's more to come, of course. Actually, there's going to be a lot of German music on the New Year's episode because I'm already kind of gearing up、mm. for that. <laughs> <laughs> Go figure. I should have put that today. I don't know, but、uh, I want to have something kind of light for the new year. Anyway, before we Get into those recordings for this week. I want to remind all of our listeners and any new listeners that we have, you can find links for Spotify and Apple Music to all the items we'll discuss, all the recordings in the episode description. Also, at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. You can get all the music in one place. That's on Deezer, the streaming platform that we prefer because it's CD quality and they have a really good. Catalog of classical jazz and pretty much everything else.、Uh, they also have podcasts there, so you can listen to the podcast and the music all in one place.、Uh, just look for us, username Adult Music Podcast.、Uh, also, if you don't see the full description or list on your app, I know some places the streaming links are not、uh, automatically kind of clickable there.、Uh, you can always come over to our host site, Podbean, P O D B E A N dot com. Everything's tidy and easy to follow over there. You can just copy and paste those links into the, them, yeah, yeah. the URLs and do that. Because I, I noticed on Pandora, because I,、mm. I have a VPN so I could visit Pandora and it looked like the links were all dead.、Yeah. But you can just kind of paste them in and then you'll get to the. Yeah, you don't know what、way. happens when they get sort of yeah.、Uh, taken yeah. into all these other podcast、uh, places.、Right. But everything's easy to follow on Podbean. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, please do、uh, follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us. And if you take a moment, give us a ranking, write a short review. That helps us get listed in the recommendations and that helps us get new listeners. And we'd be really happy about that. You can also follow us on Facebook. We've got a page there. You can get some extra info and new releases throughout the week, little musical tidbits over there.、You、can see our handsome faces as well.、Uh, leave、there、a message、go. or a comment. Our handsome aging faces. <laughs> <laughs> you can always、uh, write us an email. Our address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. 
And I'd also like to recommend a few other podcasts to you that we're sharing our listener base with. You'll find links at the end of the description there. The first one's Something Came From Baltimore. It's by Tom Galker. It's a jazz blues R&B interview podcast featuring interviews with a lot of famous musicians. Also, there's uh, Neon Jazz and Interviews. Uh, that's by Joe Domino. He's got interviews with musicians, artists, and writers. And then there's the same difference. And this is kind of a conversation about differences between people in trying to build community among mm-hmm. people. Uh, so for a good cause, some interesting discussions there. Uh, if you need some new podcasts during the week, please check those out. I'll put the links in the description. I listen to loads of podcasts all week. Yeah. And then I listen to music the rest of the time. And I just don't talk to people anymore. And I, I notice I'm a lot happier. <laughs> just don't, <laughs> if you stop talking to me, we'll have to, uh, no, you're, you're still okay. You're still on my, uh, <laughs> you're still on my good list there oh, all right. yeah. of interesting people to talk to. So <laughs> there you go. The short list, as you were saying, yeah. the short, you're on the short list. The short list yeah. <laughs> feel and it is a short list. I have to say <laughs> getting shorter all the time, getting shorter all the time. As I get older, you know, pretty soon I'll be, uh, it'll just me and my navel and that'll be it. And the stereo, of course. <laughs> Okay, so we getting into this now? Let's um, do it. The first thing we have to talk about, we have a death this week too. So cue that theme music. Okay, there it is, our, wow. our death theme. <laughs> anyway, um, the American composer Ned Roram has died at the age of 99. He was born in 1923, and he had just celebrated his 99th birthday about a month ago. And uh, now he's passed away. If you're American, especially, and he's really world, hmm. world-renowned. world People know, singers know him. He's really most famous for writing art songs. He wrote over 500 of them, so he's kind of like Schubert this way. And hmm. a lot of them are song cycles. Most of them are in English, too. In fact, the, the large, I think they might all be in English. I'm not really sure. Um, I don't know enough about them, but he did write a lot of instrumental works as well. And they've started to get uh, releases, especially on the Naxos label, who uh, they, they really take a lot of chances with uh, the music they release, which yeah. I'm really impressed by. So he's part of their American Composer series and get to hear some of that. But he's really best known for his um, songs, like all singers will know him and they will have sung some of his songs. I should mention their art songs. They're not like American songbook or anything right. like that. Grove Music Online says he sets words with naturalness and clarity, and this is really what makes a great art songwriter, without compromising the range and scope of vocal lines. So uh, the singers like it. The audience likes it because they can understand the words. It's really fantastic. If you're looking for an album of his songs, there was a really good one by uh, Susan Graham, mezzo-soprano, and accompanied by Malcolm Martineau on the piano, and I would recommend that to you. It's currently on the Erato label. Um, it was on something else when it came out. I remember that. Hmm. I, I might actually have it. I'm not really sure. I had it at one time. I might have gotten rid of it, but uh, it was very good. I, I should have kept it because I was like back in the day. Now I don't have any space anyway, so it's probably a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, so rest in peace, Ned Roram. You know, 99 years old. That's a that's a good run. I have to yeah, say. That's pretty good. All right. So getting into this week's classical music, the first we have a theme for this too, don't we? We do. We do. Let's play the theme. All right. There it is. Renitsky releases another one. 
That's two W's, Ranitsky WR releases. Um, this, yeah. That is a theme by Paul Ranitsky. An album, another album of Paul Ranitsky's music. I think this might be the sixth one that we're doing in the two years we've, the almost two years that we've been uh, doing the podcast. Um, yeah. But this one is special because this one was hand delivered to us by yeah. the head of the Ranitsky project. Yeah, Daniel Bernardson. Yeah, although he wasn't really involved in this. Mm. I think he gave them a score. Um, this is by the uh, NDR Radio Philharmonie, conducted by Rolf Gupta. They're a German ensemble, so this this fits into my German uh, theme. Yeah. You know, and uh, because of that, it's also on the CPO label, the German label. This one is um, Symphonies 50 and 51 and Symphony 37. Those numbers aren't really official. 7050 in G major, 37 in D major, and 51 in A major. Those are the opus numbers. They're being counted by the opus numbers, and I'm not really sure that that indicates, mm. you know, which numbered symphony it is, but that's what they're saying here. I'm sure Daniel will get back to us about that. <laughs> now, one thing about this album, oh, no, yeah, first of all, this is available to the general public now. You can stream it and you can uh, buy it as well. So it came out on November 4th. We got it a little early, which was very nice. And we also got the score. Yeah. We, didn't Daniel give us yeah, the, uh, the scores and score for one of the symphonies? Yeah. We got all the yeah. scores too. So, yeah, he's really great that way. That's really good to know a, a scholar like that. One issue I have with this release, though, is that it was recorded in June 2014 and February 2016. Uh, <laughs> where's it been? <laughs> why, why didn't we get this earlier? Exactly. Yeah, although now, it, and, it, and it's a recording that's really worth hearing because it's a really good performance. It has a lot of energy and a lot of mm -hmm. um, even electricity to it. It's really well, well performed by the ensemble. It's probably released now because all these Ranitsky recordings are now coming out and uh, they decided to you know throw in their lot with all of that um it's good to see ranitsky's music uh, now being um released yeah this might have gotten lost i guess in 2016 but even so if we had stumbled on it you know it would have been, been a really good thing to have yeah, yeah. they could have re-released it if they really wanted to do that anyway so that that's a a small gripe release stuff when you record it okay yeah. <laughs> anyway that's what i'd like to do i'm not a marketer obviously i'm just a fan i want to hear everything so we start out with Symphony Opus 50 in G major. We should know that um, Opus 50 and 51, which is uh, the last work on this album, they're sort of the two uh, pieces of bread in this programmatic sandwich, as well as uh, Opus 52, which is not on this album, uh, were the last three of Ranitsky's published symphonies. All three were issued in late 1804, and... To compare, to give you an idea when that was um, in musical history, this was a year after the premiere of Beethoven's Eroica Symphony. Mm. And they may have been a little inspired by that, but um, and they're not as big as that. We, we have to keep in mind that when um, music is released these days, it influences everything else if it's really good because it's a recording and everybody's listening at the same time. That's not the case in... Uh, composed music in the early 19th and late 18th century or even any time before that because um, the music had to make the rounds. It had to be heard. And um, the music that, um, well, the people made music popular, but composers really knew what was good and what wasn't. And they really decided because they had their own sort of, they were aware of what was going on. Uh, the public really didn't know until they heard something. Okay, but the composers knew other composers. They got scores. They heard about things and that sort of thing. So these aren't really, you know, they do have Beethovenian elements in them, but they're not gigantic works like the Eroica. That would come much later when people finally absorb that. All right, anyway, 
that's not to denigrate these works at all. They're pretty uh, great, actually. Uh, in G major, this one is... Um, so this first one starts poco adagio and then allegro molto. When you see two uh, um, descriptions like that, you know it's got a slow introduction followed by a faster main section. Okay, now one thing we want to notice about this, according to the booklet notes, is that in lieu of the strict development that we got, like say in Mozart, especially Beethoven, though there are passages of development, uh, this um, movement and the last movement of this work uh, features Rudinsky's handling of his motivic material like musical building blocks. Identical material is placed at different locations with different functions. Kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, hmm. maybe, but that's a little more blocky than this. Um, somebody once um, mentioned that you could... Uh, just rearrange Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, like put sections in different places and no one would notice. It would still fit together. Hmm. Whereas like say with a Mozart or Beethoven work, you couldn't possibly do that because one line leads to the other hmm. and there's a logic to the way it uh, moves. So I, I think he's implying that this Ranitsky work, work works a little bit like that in the development section, but I'm not really sure what that means. Anyway, the bullet notes go into a lot of detail about how, how each movement of the symphony on this album progresses. I'm not going to quite do that. I mean, if you want to really follow it microscopically, it's a good idea to read the booklet note, which is not by Daniel, by the way, so he's not writing this note. Okay, so this movement starts with a slow introduction, and um, the sound quality on this album is good, with lots of space around the orchestra, crisply captured bass, always important to me, and the theme is lightly taken and nicely shaped. At about one minute and six seconds in, the dancing main rhythm comes in, so the intro is really brief. And it's instantly appealing. Yeah, Renitsky had a good ear for melodies, catchy melodies. Mm -hmm. um, he, re he really shouldn't have been forgotten. It's a nicely paced movement. There are subtle humorous elements and sudden changes of rhythm popping out of the texture and highlighting the rhythm. Hmm. Occasional sounds from the bass are richly captured by the engineer. And the whole theme is cheerful and really a pleasure to hear. And it's just as well that it repeats because there's a lot to listen to and it just sounds so great. We get a cadence at 4 minutes and 15 seconds, and then there's a sudden gear shift into some ominous tones and darker harmony, changing the direction of, but not hindering, the dancing rhythm. I like the uh, way the brass and winds, long-held tones, are perfectly audible, along with the main theme and the recapitulation, which happens in the sixth minute. Energy and rhythmic propulsion is kept up admirably throughout the movement. The movement ends with a sort of holding back on the last conclusive notes. And uh, it's really great. This little kind of starts off in a nice mm. sunny way. Second movement on Dante is a shyer, quieter theme, still with a strong rhythmic feel to it, outlined by the bass accents. Uh, the contrasting theme at around 45 seconds is more florid in its figuration. At a minute and 45 seconds, we're into something a little more earnest and searching. Uh, this seems to peak at 2 minutes and 30 seconds where we get loud accents. At 2 minutes and 52 seconds, there's material accented by the bass drum and a sudden quieting, then on to the next iteration of the main developmental material. At 4 minutes and 5 seconds, we're back to the opening material. Some charming rearranging of the material orchestrally at 5.45 onwards follows that. It's a nice movement. Third movement, Allegro Vivace, Alternativo, and then Allegro. So this is the menuet and trio movement, traditional at the time. It's pretty straightforward. Um, the menuet is pretty heavily orchestrated here. Uh, Gupta's, and when I say heavily orchestrated, I mean heavy. It just feels like it has a lot of weight to it. Uh, Gupta's pacing keeps the rhythm moving fluidly. 
At a minute and 37 seconds, the trio section starts, and it's wind and reed instrument heavy, uh, which is a real characteristic sound of Renisky's. Um, if you were to play like a, a Renisky symphony, like in a coffee shop, and someone were to ask me, like, who is this? If this type of section came in, I would know it was Renitsky, I think, because winds, I would guess Renitsky, because uh, he's really the only person who does this, writes these entire sections for winds and reeds that last so long with nothing else. Uh, this is led by, I think, an oboe. Mm-hmm. I hope I'm hearing that right. It's pastoral sounding as a result. It's got a nice flow to it. And it reminds me a bit of the theme in the trio section of the third movement of Mozart's String Quartet in D major, K575. It's got that Dun, 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 dun. You got to hear it though. K575, Mozart, String Quartet in D major. It's a folk-like dance theme. Uh, by three minutes and 45 seconds, we're back to the menuet section and we go through it and it ends quietly. The finale is Allegro Vivace, has a scurrying theme with a mischievous quality to it. Um, we get a contrasting theme at 42 seconds, still scurrying, but much quieter. At a minute and 25 seconds, there's a rather surprising brief departure from the approach to the cadence, but we get right back on track and hear the cadence at a minute and 41 seconds. The opening material repeats. Uh, pacing in this movement, by the way, is excellent by the uh, the ensemble and the conductor. There's palpable energy felt in the work's forward movement. It's played fluidly and fluently. I like the way the quick upward staccato figures in the winds are taken at 2 minutes and 45 seconds and after. At 3 minutes and 24 seconds, we end the cadence for the repeat, and then we're into a development which darkens some of the key areas but maintains energy. This is another characteristic Ranitsky mm-hmm. uh, approach. He'll usually um, get into this darker key area, but it won't get all sad and heavy. You know, He'll kind of keep the rhythm going at the same time. This movement kind of reminded me of, like, say, children on an adventure, you know, kind of like Treasure Island or something, <laughs> you know, with all of its sudden harmonic turns and high-speed rhythmic figures. I missed the exact timing for the recapitulation, but it was towards the second half of the fourth minute. Uh, there's a coda with a buildup of tension in the upward figures in the sixth minute that's all excitingly resolved by the final cadence about a minute later. So we're off to an excellent start here. Mm. This was really great. Okay. The uh, meat in this sandwich, <laughs> because <laughs> it's just an earlier work, it's the, the one differentiating one. Symphony number, Opus 37, sorry, I should say, not number. Opus 37 in D major. This one came out in November 1799. So this was when uh, Beethoven's first symphonies were coming out, so a little earlier. Um, this was written for the wedding celebration of Count Nicholas Esterhaza de Galantha and Marchioness Francoise de Roisin. And uh, so it's kind of a little tailor-made for them. I'll explain how in a minute. The first movement, Larghetto and Allegro Molto. This is, I think, a technique that Mozart really established. The the slow introduction followed by the uh, more sprightly sort of uh, main section. And uh, Ranitsky's doing it here too. I guess it was just in the air at the time. I don't know that Mozart started it, but he does Mm. it all the time. And I'm guessing Haydn does too. It It might have just been in the air and everybody was doing it. I couldn't tell you. But anyway, Mozart was dead by this time and Ranitsky's doing it here. So we start with um, an opening accented chord followed by a pause. Uh, Then there's a gentle melody led by the flute. Um, The opening chord, I would imagine, is an attention getter just to make all the wedding guests like turn their heads and say, oh, the music's starting. (laughs) This actually sounds, this actually a Beethovenian quality to it, but it precedes Beethoven's heroic works. I'm sure Beethoven must have heard these works, these um, Renisky symphonies. 
At a minute and 29 seconds, the main section begins. It scurries and features a lot of bass drum rumbles. There are the characteristic passages for wind harmony alone in a Ranitsky symphony, characteristic of his style, as I mentioned. Again, vivid sound on this recording. The bass drums and basses rumble satisfyingly. At three minutes and eight seconds, the strings go scurrying off into the development section, which again features some satisfying passages for the wind section alone. Recapitulation returns us to familiar ground. There's a short coda at the end. Vivid, loud, affirmative ending. I like the raw sound of the brass on the closing chords. Yeah, big brass there. Yeah, that was cool. <laughs> Makes me feel like a man. <laughs> All right, anyway. Second movement, Andante. It's said that the bride and bridegroom that the symphony was written for were great admirers of Mozart's final work for the theater, the magic flute. So Ranitsky incorporated a short 30-second note run at the end of each line of the serenade melody, the one that uh, Papageno plays on his uh, flute. Da -da 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 -da. You hear it all the time in the magic flute. And if you know that that work, that opera, it's not really an opera, though, you'll recognize it instantly. It's <laughs> really... Mm -hmm. um, very, very easy to spot. The theme has the feel of a light classical era dance, or perhaps a Baroque era dance, too. At 29 seconds, we hear the sound of Papageno's flute for the first time. Unmissable, really. I don't even have to point this out if you know the magic flute. I imagine this must have charmed the marriage couple as well as the wedding guests if they really liked that work a lot. You know, they would hear it here at their, at their wedding, and they must have really smiled. The theme of this movement puts me in mind of the opening of the slow movement of Mozart's third string quartet dedicated to Haydn, uh, the one in E-flat major, uh, making me think that the wedding couple were big fans of Mozart in general. Um, he's not really lifting that, but it sort of, it sort of um, recalls it a bit, you know, the, the speed and the way the, uh, the harmonies are layered on each other at the beginning of that uh, particular work. It's not the same, though, because there's a rhythmic pattern underlying this Ranitsky symphony, and it goes in a different direction than Mozart's does. At 2 minutes and 26 seconds, a more chugging rhythmic figure comes from the strings, but by 2 minutes and 46 seconds, we're back to the elegant dance. Uh, the ending chord is emphatic in its many repeats, and there's also a brief nod to Papageno from the Magic Flute again. Charming movement. I liked it a lot. Made me smile. Third movement, Menuetto and Trio. This precedes Beethoven in transforming this graceful courtly dance into a form, into a fierce, lowering movement at a furious <laughs> pace. Uh, Beethoven really hated uh, the, the whole menu and trio thing, and he turned them into scherzos. But it seems like he might have had a precedent, judging from this particular work. The opening isn't really furious, I wouldn't say that, but it is big and rather aggressive for a menuet. The transition into the trio is subtle. It occurs at a minute and 25 seconds and has some accented chords between the softly played string figuration. I'm thinking of this as a wedding piece, and I'm really wondering what was intended by a menuet movement like this <laughs> at a wedding. Um, it's pretty interesting. At 2 minutes and 42 seconds, the menuet returns. Yeah, this. what would the guests have thought of this? I mean, I, I really, really wish I was there. Yeah. I wish I were there. Anyway, finale. Allegro. This is a cheerful finale as befits a wedding, I guess, with a quick light string pattern contrasted by loud outbursts of chords and timpani. It's got a rather boisterous opening. The chord outbursts with timpani rumble are reminiscent of the opening of the last movement of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, still 13 years in the future. How about that? Hmm. This is a lively, boisterous movement. At 3 minutes and 16 seconds, we hear a bright, rather raspy brass outburst as we're propelled into the approach to the final cadence. 
big, boisterous, and if you have the volume turned up enough, room-shaking ending. <laughs> All right. The performance, again, is fluent and has a lot of energy. The last symphony on this album, number 51, this is the uh, the other piece of bread on this symphony sandwich in A major. Again, we have a adagio followed by allegro molto vivace, so an introduction followed by a main faster section. Uh, the opening is Mozartian with big forte chords and winding strings in between. Uh, this goes quickly into the fast section at 32 seconds. That's it's a really quick introduction, I have to say. Um, a cheerful theme uh, with memorable motifs. The second theme starts at about a minute and 20 seconds or so. This is going really fast. <laughs> He's really not wasting any time exposing these themes. The second theme is a bit lighter, but still relatively chirpy. There's a repeat of the opening material featuring a lot of tricky evasions on the tonic chord. And that's going to be a big um, part of this work, heading towards a cadence and not <laughs> playing it. And this is really something that uh, the Romantic composers of the 19th century would develop more. They wouldn't necessarily head towards a cadence and evade it, but they would have all these substitute chords that would prolong the cadence. That's not what's happening here, though. By the end of the fourth minute, we're in the development, reached by another evasive approach to the tonic. Um, it's like Reniski, if you want to put this into like scenic or movie kind of uh, movie image, um, it's like Reniski took a turn off the main road and just kept going. I mean, <laughs> you know, if you ever just went off this path, you just, yeah, I'm not on the path. You just keep going, you know. Uh, this movement, in fact, is characterized by false cadences and false approaches to one. At 6 minutes and 40 seconds, we're back to the opening material. The recapitulation is underway, a highly spirited movement with a lot of delightful harmonic surprises. So if you have a good ear for harmony and the wet, the structure of a sonata form movement, this will really interest you. It was really fun. Okay, the second uh, movement, Andante, is a, a light, elegant, dance-like rhythm shaping the theme at the opening. The theme contains bouncy, repeated notes in the middle, uh, which is something to grab onto in order to recognize it later. As the movement progresses, loud, booming chords are introduced, leading back to the opening quiet theme. There's a move toward more dramatic patterns in volume, but Reniski always veers back to the sweetness of the opening theme. Um, there's a charming, um, smaller, repeated passage at 4 minutes and 4 seconds. We get back stormy rumblings in the orchestra, which suddenly stop on an open cadence, and we're back to the gentle opening. Um, it's as though the composer is trying to present an elegant theme, but unwanted, darker, louder material always results. I kind of, when I hear that sort of thing, I think about it like when you have like dark, brooding thoughts and you suddenly catch yourself and go back to something happier. That's kind of what it sounds like <laughs> is happening here. There's some lovely wind orchestration in this movement. Uh, listen at the six minute mark and other little details that pop out and delight the ear. The movement ends calmly on a tonic chord that ends on a crescendo. The third movement is a menuet and trio again. It's a heavily dancing menuet. Uh, the approach to the cadence contains some harsh, drawn-out, repeating notes. Again, ear-catching and interesting, which is unusual for a menuet. They, they tend to be just sort of like something that kind of mark time while the before we get to the fourth movement. The trio starts at a minute and 48 seconds and starts with short phrases separated by a short rest. The section is thinner in texture than the menuet, and the last note of the three-note phrases is drawn out in an amusing way, and the menuet repeats afterwards, as is traditional. Fourth movement finale, Allegro vivace assai. <laughs> Very lively <laughs> Allegro. Okay, forward moving. Um, fleet 
light opening string rhythm followed by an explosive loud conclusion to the phrase. This reminds me a bit of Beethoven. It sounds like something he would do. A rollicking approach to a cadence toward the end of the first minute leads us back into the theme in this rondo form movement. There's a lot of harmonic and dynamic excitement in this movement. It would thrill audiences today, and I certainly hope this will be performed live as well as on this album. This would be a good yeah. choice for conductors to uh, to program. It's It's got a lot of like little harmonic surprises, so there's an intellectual element to it. It's, it's a great work. There's a satisfyingly strong bass on the ending cadential chord. I think this last work was the most exciting on the album, with its constant false cadences and sudden redirections of the harmony almost straight through. So nice programming. It really mm -hmm. kind of brought us to this really thrilling conclusion. Um, so in summary, uh, these are fantastic interpretations of these little known works, and it's going to really help uh, Ranitsky's reputation a lot, I would hope. Yeah, they're richly recorded. They sparkle in performance. Uh, pacing is flowing and energetic, though not quite at the extremes reached by the Academy for Alta Music and, the, and their timpani explosions <laughs> that we heard on an earlier episode. Um, check that one out. Check both of them out. Mm. They're really good. Uh, nevertheless, timpani register well enough to give an explosive impression on this album, too. And uh, the program is just fantastic here, especially... The last work was really great, my favorite one, but I, one of the reasons it's so great is also the lead up to it. You know, mm -hmm. we don't really expect this, and uh, the program builds very well. So highly, highly recommended. Uh, you need to let Ranitsky into your life, listeners. Yeah, very enthusiastic performances. That was probably the thing I noticed right away and mm -hmm. held through the program. Energetic tempos, attention to dynamic contrasts, and... Those great woodwind passages, there's lots of bassoon and oboe, and then you get the balance with clarinet and flute. Uh, so Ranitsky's woodwind writing is always fun. All the little tricky false cadences, little diversions, sense of humor in there. Uh, so yeah, just great to have these with all the other recordings we have now. This recording itself is very warm sounding and has a very mm. rich low end to it. Yes. I don't think it sacrifices any detail, but it'll give you kind of a glow so. of sound in the room. Yeah, turn the subwoofer on to really yeah. blow yourself away. The only question, <laughs> like you said, why'd they wait so long? But at least we yeah. have it now. You might have been out of print by now if they <laughs> if they released it in 2016. Yeah. You, you don't know. Well, anyway, I'm glad we have it. And uh, this one and the the Academy for Alta Music Berlin one was really fantastic too. I mean, that one will be a record of the year for me, at least. Yeah, but both of these are worth hearing. You should absolutely hear this. So, Ranitsky releases. There we go. Oh, and we have it. I, I, I don't know how much Ranitsky we can say, but uh, that there's some new uh, Naxos Ranitsky releases on the way next year. So, I'm looking forward to those as well. And we'll definitely be talking about those because we've kind of taken this composer on, as it were. I'm always happy to hear something new. And now I have a real concept for yeah. his composition style. And so it gives me some expectation and, you know, a base to sort of put his music into. And I'm kind of enjoying yeah. that. Yeah, maybe we are like the Grammys, like we're favoring this composer <laughs> over the others. I don't know. Are we like the Grammys? Let us know, listeners. Write to us. Anyway, album number two for this work. This is this is where I really uh, I really blow it as far as our German theme goes because there's like nothing on this that's even oh there is though okay there's a, there are German composers anyway this is called uh, an album called Synergy by uh, the flutist or flautist Sharon Bezali Bezali 
and the Swedish Chamber Orchestra and many artists. Now, Betzali is one of the the great flute players out there. She has a really beautiful tone and uh, wonderful, like, shaping of phrases. And uh, so this is really unmissable for any flute fan. This is on the Beast label, and it's an SACD. So if you got SACD um, capabilities, you get that wonderful DSD um, clarity of sound or fullness anyway. It's, it, found, it sounds really focused to me. I, I really liked this recording a lot. I listened to this in two-channel. I'm not really... I want to kind of upgrade my five-channel. So I've been listening in two-channel because I have those great uh, Dolly Oberon five speakers back there. So <laughs> I keep listening to those. Mm. Anyway, for this album, the booklet notes uh, for this album begin with three words no scholar of any sort ever wants to hear. And those words are, according to Wikipedia... Oh, geez. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so what it says is, according to Wikipedia, synergy is an interaction or cooperation giving rise to a whole that is greater than the simple sum of its parts. But you have to ask yourself, is it? Because we're reading this on Wikipedia. <laughs> anyway, synergy could have easily been looked up in the dictionary. I don't see why they had to go to Wikipedia <laughs> for this. But that is a good, I'm just joking, really. That is a good definition of what it is. Anyway, so the album celebrates making music face-to-face -face after two years of an isolating pandemic. We've heard a lot of music like that this year and probably will next year as well. Boy, this, this autumn too, a lot of music has come out. And I bet it was just all recorded just after, you know, right. the pandemic ended maybe earlier this year or late last year. It's all coming out now. We're being swamped. So we'll be going well into the new year with a lot of this music until the 2023 <laughs> releases start coming out. So the music was chosen for its ability to act as evidence of the playful pleasure of meeting and playing together. So it's kind of a nice album mm. for the most part. Okay, it's not going to really uh, make you solve any... Uh, it's not like listening to the Sunday Times crossword puzzle or anything like that. It's not going <laughs> to tax your brain that much. Okay, the, the New York Times Sunday crossword puzzle. Anyway, the first um, composer is George Philippe Telemann. So there's my German connection there. Yeah. Uh, concerto in E minor for recorder and flute with strings and harpsichord. TWD, you have to say these, TWV 52 colon small e 1, lowercase e 1. Um, <laughs> because Telemann wrote, I think I think I've count, they've counted 800 million works by now <laughs> <so> <laughs> in his lifetime. And uh, th th there's no indicate, there are no opus numbers or anything like that. So scholars have... Uh, labeled them all with these um, sort of catalog numbers that are impossible to remember. But if you do remember them, you can drop them at a party and everybody will be really impressed by your superior musical knowledge. Anyway, Betzali plays this with um, on the flute with uh, Michaela Petri, Petri on the recorder. So they're duetting here. First movement is a Largo, and it's a fairly light, Baroque-sounding performance of this work. I like the way the attack pops out of Mikala Petri's recorder when she plays, which is one of the things I like about the recorder, the way they, they can make the sound, you know, just kind of pop out of the instrument like that. It's it's really appealing sound. Uh, while the flute has a silkier attack, naturally, it would. Um, they blend together well when they play harmony, especially in the mid-range. Now, the upper range is a bit piercing, maybe to my aging years, but it's beautifully <laughs> recorded and played. Uh, nice false cadence at 2 minutes and 48 seconds, by the way. I love those. It's a really pretty performance. Second movement, Allegro, 
has a good allegro speed to it, but not the occasional breakneck approach we get these days. So I was rather happy with this. It breathes comfortably. I'm impressed with the way Batsali's modern flute fits in with the sounds of this ensemble and the recorder. Now I should mention, the orchestra is modern, but plays with the shorter strokes now used in historically performed Baroque performance. But we're not hearing the, the gut strings of the lower um, kind of uh, frequency of the uh, notes that we often hear in Baroque um, albums. It, this has a kind of shine to it that we don't get in period instrument Baroque uh, performance. And it's starting to sound a little odd because we're getting used to those um, Baroque, mm. you know, these period instrument performances now. It works well here, though. Um, the tempos are right, and again, the um, the the technique that's used by the uh, players in the orchestra, as well as the two soloists, kind of make it sound baroque. Uh, again, very pretty soloing by flute and recorder. The third movement, Largo. Uh, the recorder starts this over a thumping pizzicato accompaniment in the low strings. Both performers get to show off their tone here. The recorder does get piercing in its high end, though. Is that me, or is that? <laughs> is that the recorder itself? What do you think? Yeah, in general, if you listen to just, I don't know what the names of the voices for the recorders are, but right. if you have just that standard one, you know, that we started mm -hmm. on in elementary school. That's, yeah, those are plastic, though. These are like wooden nice instruments, though. It's still yeah. kind of chirpy, and, mm -hmm. you know, you might have... You know, it might be attacked by like, you know, some flock of swallows or something if you play mm -hmm. that too long. Not like the recording we heard last time that had various recorders. You know, they had like a tenor recorder or something like that on that. And it could have, oh, you know, expanded. That was, um, the, yeah. Yeah. Lucy Horse. Yeah. That, that was great. Yeah, yeah, she had a wide range. But well, she had a lot of different instruments as well. Yeah, mm. in these kind of Baroque recordings, sometimes that recorder gets really chirpy to me. So it's not only you. I don't mind the chirpiness. It's just when they get that loud, piercing, high note, you know? I'm just wondering if it's my deteriorating ears that can't stand the sound anymore or if it's uh, <laughs> actually the the actual sound of the recording. In a few more years, you won't be able to hear it and then won't bother At you. all. Yeah. You know, like, like you said, you know, pretty soon we'll just be listening to music through yeah. subwoofers and that'll be it. <laughs> we'll have to do bassoon and Barry Sachs recordings only. So Yeah, the bassoon and Barry Sachs <laughs> podcast. We'll have to <laughs> rename the podcast. <laughs> the bass podcast <laughs> geriatric music we'll call it yeah fourth movement presto has a gypsy atmosphere with bagpipe effects as well um you can hear the circling so-called gypsy melody right away once the soloists come in we get a passionate virtuosic pair of lines going the movement moves quickly but comfortably excellent choice of pacing and a good introduction for this album. Now this album is going to end with a Baroque work too. So we get another kind of sandwich uh, form for this album. I wonder if they actually think of a sandwich when they're making <laughs> these, <laughs> these, these programs up. Could be. I would anyway, but I, of course I would because I like eating anyway. Track five. Camille Saint-Saëns, Tarantella, Opus six for flute or Tarantella which would be the French way to say it, for flute, clarinet, and orchestra. Presto Manon Troppo. In this case, we have um, Michael Collins, the clarinetist and conductor. He's also conducting the uh, the orchestra here. Did I mention who the orchestra was? The Swedish Chamber Orchestra is on all of these works. Please don't be confused. There's Michael Collins, the great uh, clarinet, uh, one of the great clarinetists in the world today. Not the same guy who... Uh, orbited the moon in the Apollo 11 spacecraft. <laughs> that was a different Michael Collins. 
Okay. I, I wish it was the same one because that would be super cool if he was like this great uh if he was also this great concert clarinetist. But he's not. Anyway. After this is a really interesting programming choice because and in fact we're gonna see more of this as the program goes on. After the circling gypsy rhythm of the previous Telemann movement, the last movement of the Telemann work, we get another circling theme. So the the sort of works connect over the centuries. This one has a more Mediterranean flavor to it, so we've kind of changed a bit of the the spice in it, as it were. Uh, Tarantella, of course, is a six eight dance rhythm, and Michael Collins is a top ranked clarinetist. And the gorgeous tones we get from him and Bezzali make this a performance to savor. Um, they both dance through their bubbling lines, and bubbling is a good word. I like the way the clarinet can make that bubbling sound, you know. And we get a little bit of that in here. That's a really great thing. Uh, this has an appealing upbeat feel to it. Taut rhythms are maintained throughout. A really great performance of this work, beautifully recorded too, and the clarinet's tone especially caught my ear in this. Very rich and beautiful. What a what a um, clarinet should sound like. Okay, the centerpiece of this album is next. It's a three-movement work by Franz Doppler, his concerto in D minor for two flutes and orchestra. This is arranged and revised by Andras Adorhan with Walter Auer playing the other flute. And Thomas Dausgaard is conducting the Swedish Chamber Orchestra on this one. Um, the soloists, by the way, if you want to follow them, alternate. Uh, this didn't really help <laughs> me much. Walter Auer plays the first flute until the middle of the second movement. And then Sharon Bazzali plays the first flute from there on. So they kind of trade places in the middle. Doppler, the composer, was born in Lemberg, Galicia, which today is Lviv, Ukraine. Ukraine. He spent his career in Hungary, where he contributed to the birth of Hungarian national music. And this is the centerpiece of the program, really. The first movement, Allegro Maestoso. This has a bit of a heavy, stamping, East European quality to it, its first theme. The second theme is more legato and flowing. You can hear it at a minute in. Okay, it kind of comes really quickly. The soaring upward scales that occur at two minutes in in the two flutes are ear-catching. There's a lovely quiet section in the third to fifth minutes where both flutes play melting lines. Just the tone all the soloists get on this album make it worth hearing. Now, the flute tone in this movement is sumptuous and wonderful throughout. Second middle movement, Andante, so the slow movement, connected to the previous movement by a harp arpeggio. It starts arpeggiating chords as the flutes play a barcarolle sounding melody. Barcarolles are 6-8, so what I mean is like it kind of feel has this kind of wave-like motion to it. Um, it's not an actual barcarolle because those exist um, in these uh, in classical music. It sounds like the melodies are floating on rippling water on a moonlit night, and it's a very romantic-sounding movement. The third movement, Allegro, has a more swashbuckling theme for the opening. The flutes play rapid lines in harmony and make the sound like a swashbuckling dance. There's a slower melting theme at a minute and 20 seconds or so. The cadenza in this movement is played mostly in harmony between the two flutes, and it's impressive athleticism combined with a rhythmic precision that keeps the two instruments in line with each other. Impressive to hear, even if I've come to expect it from musicians at this stature. The flutter tonguing at the beginning of the fifth minutes is played at impressive speed too. There's an amazingly high piercing note, probably by Bezzali, right at the end of the movement as the flutes sign off. And the next one is a piece that uh, both you and I kind of uh, <laughs> were really impressed by. Yeah. Hey, Hector Villalobos, 
Bachianus Brasileiras number six from 1938 for flute and bassoon. Mm. A rather unusual combination. A lot of times with this album, we heard this, I think, with the clarinet work too. I found myself listening to the clarinet more. And in this work, I found myself listening mostly to the bassoon because it's just such an unusual sounding instrument with the flute and uh, the way it's written for here. Yeah. Um, the bassoonist is Bram van Sambeek. Anyway, this is a two-movement work. It starts with an aria and uh, subtitled Choro, which is a traditional Brazilian song. Um, it's made to sound like a Bach invention with the two notes playing against each other in a sort of counterpoint. The flute is high up and flutters. And what's impressive here is the bassoon's tone painting, uh, not painting, bassoon's tone paired with the flute. It plays a melodic line as the flute decorates the space with arpeggiated figures. At a minute and 20 seconds, both start playing in counterpoint. The lines are easily separable by the very distinct timbres of both instruments. It's very appealing and a unique pairing of sounds. And the second movement is a fantasia. Here the bassoon burbles in the bass at the opening while the, the, um, the flute uh, sets a melodic figure. The bassoon at time gets way down in its range and gets a satisfyingly nasal reedy tone. The flute plays rapid figuration. Uh, Batali really is a player of the highest rank. She's played some impressive figures on this album. The flute impresses throughout. Um, but always seem, I always seem to be drawn to the duetting partner's tone, perhaps because it's always so different than the flutes. And maybe it's just a generosity on Betsali's part. You know, you, she gets these great solos and gives them a lot of space. Um, I love the quirkiness of this movement. Listen at the four-minute mark and onwards to the honks on the bassoon at its low end, all the way up to the nasal sound it makes right at the end of the movement. Right, and we conclude with, with uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, Sweet Oster Orchesterwerken. This is um, arranged by Gustav Mahler in 1909, and Michael Collins is conducting. So I got to explain what this is, really. It's a little odd. People often think Bach's music has been performed ever since he wrote it. Um, but after he died, it was forgotten because it was considered old-fashioned. Um, Felix Mendelssohn revived it 200 years after Bach died. So there were 200 years where nobody heard Bach's music. But composers, certain composers, had access to his scores. People mm -hmm. like Mozart and uh, Beethoven knew about it. Um, and it slowly made its way into what was becoming a repertoire of great European music. There was no repertoire in Bach's day or Mozart's or Beethoven's. It was just the music that was inspiring what came after it. And then finally, it was the Romantics that put all of this together into like a great European tradition. Which we're now kind of breaking with a bit. I mean, they're, you know, mm -hmm. those composers are secure, but we keep making it wider and wider now, which is a good thing. We shouldn't forget all those other composers either. Bach's music was still relatively unknown in America when Mahler was conducting in New York in 1909. So he made this suite of the most popular movements from Bach's orchestral suites in order to introduce it there. Now, if you know the orchestral suites, you'll, of course, know the air uh, mm -hmm. on the G string, which... Um, we're absolutely going to hear here. There's no way you can leave that out of a suite like this. But there are three other popular movements too. Um, the whole idea of historically informed interpretations wasn't an idea yet. So we get a rather heavy orchestration here. It's going to sound a little unusual to us who are, have become used to period instrument fleet light orchestral performances. Although I do remember performances like this from when I was like a child. Hearing things like uh, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir sing Handel's Messiah, if you can imagine such a thing, like every every choral <laughs> entry was earth shaking. 
you know, as opposed to the light sort of uh, sound that we get today. Okay, so you, when you listen to this, you can think of it as an, as an example of the way Bach was appreciated 100 years ago. The first movement he chooses here is an overture from suite number two in B minor, um, BWV 1067. This Mahler arrangement clouds over some detail. It's so legato-laden and thickly scored. The tempo taken here is a normal for a Baroque period instrument's work. In fact, it may be a bit fast for this particular um, arrangement. I'd bet it would have been played more slowly in Mahler's day, but I think that would have driven us crazy today. <laughs> we had to hear this really slow as though Carl Richter were conducting it. At about a minute and 35 seconds, a fugue starts. Um, the flute solos in a more modern style, uh, fitting in with the arrangement's approach. Betzali is athletic in her very long mobile lines. The second movement, Rondo and Badineri, and then Rondo again from suite number two in B minor. The melody of this well-known movement is nicely shaped. It's if slightly more syrupy in this arrangement. Uh, Collins, the conductor here, gives the rhythm a lively vigor. Um, the arrangement may not be historically informed, but he is um, playing at a good minor speed. Again, I think this would have been slower back in the day and again, less bearable to our modern ears. So this is probably a good thing that Michael Collins conducted it the way he did. The middle section at about a minute and 38 seconds is surprisingly fleet with Betzali on the flute being put through her paces. She's comfortable doing it, but this is a very fast given the arrangement. Third movement, the very famous air from suite number three in D major, BWV 1068, orchestrated only as Mahler can orchestrate. I can almost hear some of the sumptuousness of Mahler's own adagio from his fifth symphony. Um, here, Collins accentuates the thumping pizzicati slightly, giving the movement a stronger sense of forward movement. The famous melody comes across well. In fact, some listeners may prefer it this way to what we generally hear these days. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's more romantic in a Malarian way. It's, it's, there's a, there are a lot of um, players on this. And the fourth movement, uh, Gavotte 1 and 2 from suite number 3 in D major. This arrangement leans towards being bombastic with the use of the bass drum to accent the rhythm. Collins, however, keeps the rhythm dancing along and draws out all the necessary detail. The middle section features thickly arranged strings and some appealing melodic brass lines. In this arrangement, the harpsichord almost seems an anomaly. Uh, it's just odd to hear these movements arranged in this way. They are very appealing and attractively presented here, and it has a rather grandiose ending. And then, as a little uh, bonbon at the end, track 15, um, we get a uh, the Badinari from uh, suite number 2 in B minor one more time. Uh, this encore is taken at lightning speed here. And is more lightly orchestrated, more in the Baroque style. So we're kind of ending in the Baroque style here. This isn't a Mahler arrangement, but it's got modern pitches. This is an opportunity for Bizzali to show her amazing virtuosity, which she does here, all while maintaining her full tone. Uh, this is pretty quick. It's over in a minute and 15 seconds. So this album, it's, it's enjoyable all the way through. Um, it's easy enough to luxuriate in Bezzali's full tone and athletic playing. But we also get top-ranked soloists duetting with her. The program is interestingly arranged. One is guided through the similar elements in the works. The gypsy feel of Telemann's last movement leads to the dancing Tarantella, which brings us to the heavier dance of the beginning of Doppler's concerto. Villa Lobos's Bachian leanings lead us into Bach himself. The sound throughout is excellent, and there's such a variety of timbre in the soloist tones that the ear is constantly engaged and delighted. So enjoyable all the way through, features a lot of music that will be new to many listeners' ears, and is beautifully recorded too. And if you have an SACD player, 
it's even more sumptuous. So I'd say absolutely hear this too. I enjoyed all of it, especially the Doppler. I hadn't heard that before. Mm. And the mm. two flutes, uh, I can really see why this would be a sort of centerpiece and uh, magnet for flute players. Yeah. I liked the bassoon a lot too. That was interesting. Uh, combined yeah, that was with cool. The flute was really cool. And it showed off both sides of the bassoon, a more lyrical strain in the first movement and then the sort of heavier kind of edgy tone that we also know. And But actually, I came away with a different impression of this album than you because I found the orchestra playing on it to be extremely light. Okay. Yeah, that's right. We talked about yes. this because I had it on the uh, SACD and you were listening on uh, Deezer, right? Yes. Just in okay. general, I mean, I thought it worked really well on the Telemann because you want to stay, you know, sort of behind the flute and recorder sounds. And I just kept writing that it was very, you know, delicate, I thought. But I also thought even though in the Bach, the arrangement is kind of thick in the strings, but I still got a very light impression from the orchestra playing on this whole album. I don't know if it's the recording or just the the volumes or whatever, but I, I didn't get a sense of uh, heaviness at all from uh, the ensemble's play. Yeah, I'm going to put this SACD in your uh, your mailbox there, and you can tell me what you think. Okay. I don't know. I'll Maybe you can compare it. the yeah. two. We'll uh, give it a listen there. It could be interesting. Yeah, but it's an interesting program. Got a lot of different periods and styles of music to go through here. So, Okay, so for our third, so I think sort of like, in the same way that the uh, Ranitsky recording just kind of built to a great work at the end, we've built to a really great uh, recording at the end here. This is a um, an album of symphonies by Mieczysław Weinberg, Polish composer, Polish slash Russian composer from, uh, or maybe Polish slash Soviet composer from the uh, 20th century. This is a recording of his symphonies three and seven and flute concerto number one. And it's the follow-up recording of Weinberg symphonies by the uh, Lithuanian conductor Mirga Grazinite Tila. Here she's conducting the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra in Symphony Three and the Flute Concerto and the Deutsche Kammerphilharmonie Bremen. I got another German connection there. Which one? The, the Symphony Seven which leads off the album. She's also got um, Kirill Gerstein on the harpsichord in the uh, Seventh Symphony. Um, interesting choice of instruments for a modern <laughs> work or a, a 20th century work anyway. And Marie-Christine Zupanchik on the flute uh, for the flute concerto. So Mirga Grazinitetila made her name with the recording of Weinberg Symphonies 2 and 21 in 2019, which you might remember, Russ, because mm -hmm. I, I remember lending you the CD of this. It was kind of a new big thing. It was one of the major recordings of that year. And it put her as a, as a conductor and Weinberg as a composer on the map. Um, of he, He's suddenly someone who's pe whose music people wanted to hear. Um, that particular album won many awards that year, including, I think, Record of the Year by uh, on Gramophone Magazine. I'm pretty sure that was the Record of the Year. Mm. Um, but it was certainly... It was certainly the orchestra work that they picked as the year. Um, this particular album, I think, is even better than that one. The only difference is that that album came out of nowhere and surprised everyone. Nobody knew Weinberg's music, but now they do. And this one 
is coming with expectations. So uh, it might not be received in quite the same way with the, the same surprise, but it's absolutely fantastic. The album clocks in at almost 81 minutes, but it's packed with extraordinary music. I really loved this. Okay, so let's get into this. The first um, piece is Symphony Number no. 7, Opus 81 from 1964 for string orchestra and harpsichord. Now, it seems like Weinberg likes to write for string orchestra because one of the works on the her on Gragini Tetila's uh, previous Weinberg orchestra, symphony album also had a string orchestra work. Um, this one features the Deutsche Kammerphilharmonie Bremen uh, with Kirill Gerstein on the harpsichord. And um, just to give a little description of how this came about, Weinberg was friends with Rudolf Barshai, who ran the Moscow Chamber Orchestra. Uh, Barshai had founded the uh, orchestra in 1955 with the composer and harpsichordist Andrei Volkonsky. The ensemble gave the first performance. Nah, I can't talk anymore. The ensemble <laughs> gave the first performance of this work and the flute concerto that follows. Um, Volkonsky had helped introduce early music to Soviet audiences, but as a composer, his avant-garde style repeatedly brought him into conflict with the authorities. With the result that after 1964, his works were effectively banned. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. I mean, it's terrible, but, uh, you know, it's just, I just, I always think it's silly for people to be afraid of art, you know. But if you're not in a free society, that's what happens. This particular symphony emerges as a kind of Baroque concerto, grosso, translated into a modern context. In the work, the string's entire spectrum of sonorities is explored through the interplay between harpsichord and strings. Weinberg also included techniques associated with the Polish sonorists. Uh, sonorism focuses on characteristics of timbre, texture, articulation, dynamics, and motion. So I guess it's kind of an offshoot of the um, Debussy style of writing mm -hmm. where you're focusing on the timbre or the sound of the instruments or the, things they, the sounds they can make. Anyway. First movement is Adagio Sostenuto. The harpsichord opens with a Baroque sounding theme, which is based on a fragment taken from Weinberg's Opus 50 song cycle. The harpsichord has a realistic sound relative to the orchestra on this album. You get a sense from this recording of what a harpsichord actually sounds like when you hear it in a concert. The harpsichord sound here is recorded rich and plush in quality, and it's very, very quiet. You have to kind of lean into your speakers to hear it. And that's the way it is in a concert. Okay, Usually when we hear a harpsichord uh, recording, it's recorded very loud and very close. And uh, it's like you're sticking your head into the uh, you know, <laughs> under the lid of the harpsichord to hear it, but not here. Okay, so the, the harpsichord's theme itself is rather simple. Uh, the way the strings come in, slowly crescendoing, is gorgeous. There's a pulsing at a minute and 34 seconds, and a haunting folk-like theme is heard. We hear this play out repeatedly as a very slow crescendo stretches across minutes. This is so beautifully graded. And this is, uh, the ability to do this is really the mark of a great um, conductor. So I want to just uh, compliment um, Mirka Grajini Tetila. There, she's really going to be one of the, or is already one of the world's um, uh, premier conductors. A string orchestra plays beautifully with heartfelt phrasing and warmth, but part of that is Weinberg's orchestration. Overall, the movement comes across as rather sad and poignant, which is very much in contrast with the Baroque Concerto Grosso, but the sound world is, from, is similar. I thought this movement had a lot of beauty to it. It's very attractive. We finally hear the harpsichord again at 5 minutes and 46 seconds, playing the song melody again. 
with harmonic accompaniment in the left hand. Some of the chords sounding rather harsh, but of course the, uh, the sound of the harpsichord kind of mitigates the harshness of the sound. It's such a delicate sound. The harpsichord ends this movement with a bass note repeated three times. All right, this is attached to the next movement. All three, all four movements, or all five movements are attached to each other in this work. The second movement is Allegro, and the strings set a rhythmic pattern in this movement and play the melody at the beginning. The piece has more movement here. The strings sound like a pretty large group and generate gorgeous warmth when the entire spectrum they can produce is heard. At about a minute and 20 seconds, a new technique is introduced, a staccato rhythm, achieved by bouncing the bow off the string. Pizzicato come in as well. Uh, incidentally, the bass strings are vividly recorded and practically burst out of the speaker. This is another uh, album for you uh, subwoofer owners out there. By 2 minutes and 39 seconds, we're at full volume, and what glorious sound we're getting from this recording. Ample space around the ensemble to let the overall sound breathe. Um, at a minute and at three minutes and four seconds, the harpsichord comes in for a very quiet and rather rhythmic interjection. The strings are quickly back with a new approach that soon melds into the opening rhythm and melody. When the strings clear out, the harpsichord is back playing a folk-like melody with block chords. Low strings play a warm concluding phrase, and this attaches to the third movement, Andante, which is a song-like movement. It references the world of Jewish music. Um, pizzicato leads us into this, and the violins uh, play the theme up high. You can easily discern the Jewish song-like nature of this by the melody and rhythm created by the pizzicati in the bass and cellos. It's immediately appealing, but with a shade of haunting darkness here, despite it sounding like a cheerful song on the surface. The arrangement is working its uh, magic by giving us this feeling. The rather quiet playing of the theme makes it seem far away, as this world of Jewish music making may have been to Weinberg at the time. Uh, there's a more diffuse interlude in this section at two minutes, but at three minutes, the pizzicati start again. The melody winds its way toward the end of the movement, ending with a slowing and some ghostly descents on the harmonics of the strings. No harpsichord in this movement. I want to mention what we've heard so far. We've heard pizzicati. We've heard this bouncing the bow off the strings. We've heard pizzicati. We've heard the warm sound. We're hearing all sorts of different attacks on the strings. It's really fascinating if you're interested in... Um, the timbre that instruments are capable of making. And I really am. This is one of the most um, appealing things about classical music to me, especially orchestral music. Fourth movement, Adagio Sostenuto, um, creates the impression of an anguished scream, according to the booklet notes. Um, there's a long pause before this. Despite the anguished scream quality of the material, there's nothing agonizing about listening to this. It's tonal and sounds dramatic more than it sounds painful. Uh, shifting frequencies and short phrases create the anguished feel. At a minute and 17 seconds, there's an earnest outpouring of melody from the cello. The section ends with some loud pizzicati in the bass, and at 2 minutes and 3 seconds, there's a long pause, then a forlorn, drawn-out theme from a viola with a bed of long-bowed cello and bass tones underneath. This ends the movement. And the fifth movement, the concluding movement, is an allegro. And this was really fascinating. There's a bit of a sense of humor in this movement. A bell-like sound is heard on the harpsichord that sounds like the ringing of a telephone. So it's like a harpsichord is imitating yeah. a, a ringing telephone. If anybody out there remembers what those sound like, I mean, from, <laughs> I know from childhood, but we never hear them anymore because mm. it's all electronic sounds now. It makes a, a surprise moment 
It marks a surprise moment of stasis before the movement finally returns to the harpsichord's opening theme and brings the work to a close at the end. Anyway, the telephone sound begins the movement. It's followed by a bouncing of the bow on the strings twice, then an ending phrase by the violins. They eventually enlarge their material into a longer theme and pick up the trilling effect of the harpsichord's telephone sound and integrate it into their melody. This is really fantastic orchestra writing that he can integrate that sort of ringing telephone theme into the, his um, longer melodies in the orchestra. This is the longest movement by far of the symphony at 10 minutes and 50 seconds, um, but there's not a boring moment in it. At a minute and 42 seconds, the harpsichord comes in and plays rapid arpeggiated figuration. I should note that the harpsichord never plays at the same time as the strings. Um, they, they're both given their own separate spaces in the whole composition. Um, there's a lot of humor in this movement. One example being the bent pizzicati in the bass at about three minutes and six seconds. After that, the strings play a loud version of the telephone motif over an urgent marching pizzicato in the bass. There's something East European folk-like about the material played in parts of this section. Listen at about four minutes and 45 seconds into the fifth movement. The material is pretty quicksilver in its changes here. The overall texture rapidly shifts as well. The harpsichord quietly comes in for an ostinato section at 5 minutes and 30 seconds, which is ended by a brief phrase on the harmonics of the violin. The harpsichord comes back with its telephone sound, some really compelling sounds from the strings after this, beginning at 6 minutes or so if you want to check it out. The music quiets down by the 7th minute as the quicksilver changes continue. The pizzicato bass comes back as the strings build on the telephone sound. At the 9 minute mark, the harpsichord states some blocky chords, after which a warm, hushed, massed string sound leads to a last violin line, and it simply stops, and we get a final harpsichord chord underlined by the gentle strings. An appealing and inventive work, the last movement, and beautifully recorded too. All right, so the middle of this program, and this is really the bonbon. The, the two symphonies are fairly heavy works, but the uh, concerto for flute and orchestra in the middle, with Marie-Christine Zupanchik playing the flute, and the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, playing the orchestral as the orchestra conducted by Mirka Grajini Tatila, um, is a lighter work. Um, it was dedicated to Alexander Korneyev, who gave the work's first performance with the Moscow Chamber Orchestra in 1961. All three movements are notable for their interplay of scherzo-like and somber sonorities. So happy, sad, kind of intermingling. The first movement, Allegro Molto, has a perky, chirpy opening that sounds more Baroque than the above work. The orchestra's lines are fleet and light in accompaniment. Rhythmically interesting, too. Rhythmic changes occur in quick succession between sections, the accompaniment constantly shifting beneath the flute. It's playful and fun. The movement is very repetitive, with familiar sections constantly circling around. We break out of this a bit at the three-minute mark, where the string lines get longer and the rhythm more severe. The chirpier opening material comes back afterwards. There are a few appealing time signature changes between sections as well, keeping the rhythm and one's ear active. The second movement, Largo, so the slow movement, um, starts quietly with low, long, hushed, bowed chords in the strings. The flute comes in and plays a more plaintive melody. This movement stays in this plaintive mode throughout. The end of the movement has the strings crescendoing a bit, then falling silent as the flute makes its last statement, ending with an unresolved long note that connects it to the next movement, which is Allegro Comodo, 
This is a light-footed, waltz-like atmosphere, and it establishes a connection with the sort of Jewish music that Weinberg himself may have played as a young pianist at Jewish weddings in Warsaw. I very much enjoyed the way the violins took on the flute's volume and timbre from the end of the last movement and bent it into this more traditional-sounding melody. At 50 seconds, we hear the circling rhythm and Siciliano rhythm that's reminiscent of traditional Jewish music. The movement circles between the opening material and this more ethnic music. There's some nice flutter-tonguing from the 3 minute and 30 second mark or so, rapid and clean, and it makes me realize what a rhythmically incisive and appealing tone Zupanchik is providing for this work. The opening circling rhythm reaches a crisis point at the end and suddenly ends on a final chord. So this is a light work, giving us a break between the two bigger symphonies. And it's very enjoyable. Okay, the last work, Symphony Number no. 3, Opus 45. And once again, we're, le- we're being led into this, um, you know, the, the programming builds to this, this big thing at the end, Symphony Number no. 3. This was written in 1949 to 1950, revised in 1959. There's a bit of a story behind that. Um, and this features the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra. Weinberg was a victim of Stalin's desire to invest music with a new national ideology. All right. Think think about this. Just think about your job and your boss comes in and says, okay, now we're all going to do this one crazy thing. Okay. And you have to, you have to do it. And some people just can't. And Weinberg was probably one of those people. His name appeared in a list of works that a secret edict of Stalin's banned from being performed. In these circumstances, knowing he was persona non grata in the cultural life of the Soviet Union, uh, he began this symphony, and he tried to meet the requirements of the Soviet Union's official doctrine of socialist realism, which demanded optimism, a clear and readily accessible musical language, and an affinity with the people to be achieved by means of simple tunes and material borrowed from the music of the folk. Ugh, boring. <laughs> anyway, but Weinberg sought to interpret these edicts in his own way. Look, this drives me crazy. Leave art to the artists. They know what to do. They know what other artists are doing, and they want to comment on that. They don't want to. They don't want your ridiculous political uh, agenda in their work. All right, and that's and I speak for all future uh, governments too. Just stay out of the arts. You know, you can fund them, but that's about it. Okay. Anyway, first movement, Allegro. And this begins with a folk tune. Um, It's beautiful. And it's in B minor. So that kind of makes it a tribute to Schubert's unfinished symphony in this case, according to the booklet notes. After after that, we hear a Belarusian folk song, which is called What a Moon in English, in the strings. And this tune kind of enters into a dialogue with the first um, subject. Um, so this, um, we hear the string figure at the beginning accompanying the folk tune in the winds. The Schubert element comes in the accompanying swirling string. So if you know how the eighth symphony begins, um, the, the, the unfinished symphony begins with the, those rising and falling strings. We get that image here, not the same notes, but the same sort of pattern. The tone of the movement is fresh and ready for experience. At a minute and 12 seconds, we hear the Belarusian folk tune, earthy and lovely. There's some lovely, gentle orchestration supporting it, including a harp. At 2 minutes and 14 seconds, we hear the opening theme again. The cello takes it up at 2 minutes and 34 seconds, and at the third minute, we're hearing the Belarusian theme in conflict. There are sudden, loud, and soft, dynamic contrasts. I liked the brass at around 3 minutes and 55 seconds. There's a, there's a martial rhythm at about this point, 
The orchestra is big and produces a rich, varied sound, bass registering strongly through the speakers. The two themes would seem to be in conflict in this movement. By the 5 minute and 20 second mark, there's a huge forte and harmony indicating crisis. At 5 minutes and 50 seconds, the music finally gets into a more optimistic upper key, which puts things to rest a bit so that the Belarusian theme can be gently played at 6 minutes and 24 seconds in the winds. At 7 minutes and 24 seconds, a new gentle section starts in 3-4, with the flute playing the opening melody as the strings create the gentle rhythm. The melody goes into the strings afterward. A long crescendo follows, building the lovely warm string federation up to exhaustion. After a brass chord, the strings wind down in energy and stop. At the 9 minutes and 46 second mark, uh, quieter, more still material begins, and we're in a cold, desolate place. The movement ends quietly with a final long-breathed chord in the winds. Uh, I found this movement very touching. The second movement, Allegro Giocoso, is scherzo-like and includes a folk song in the violins. It's the Polish folk song, Matek Has Died. So Weinberg has used a Polish folk song, connecting the work to his native country, and a Belarusian one connecting the work to the place where he trained as a composer in Minsk. Uh, there are no Russian folk songs in this work, <laughs> which is where he's uh, composing it. I wonder if that's a statement. We don't know, though. Anyway, the folk song has a fanfare dance quality to it. It's repeated, interestingly, in a pizzicato violin, which completely changes its profile. Then it's varied in the flute. Uh, the trumpet gets it back, the movement eventually gets to rolling at about the two-minute mark, and then we hear thin tones from the winds as they play the theme with a raucous rhythm underneath. Vivid timpani roll at the third minute. The movement, and really this entire album, has fantastically creative orchestration. At three minutes and 45 seconds, the dancing folk theme comes back in the flute and strings. At the very end, there's a harp and harmonics on the strings as a slower folk-like theme is played. The opening dancing folk theme gets one more peek in at the end. The third movement, Adagio. Dark and lyrical tone recalls the Adagietto of Mahler's Fifth Symphony. It has a very clear melody in the low strings at the opening. It's very slow and legato and very attractive. It sounds modal and some of its tones grab the ear, despite it all being tranquil. There's a bass clarinet, I think, playing the line at 3 minutes and 15 seconds. Underlined by a string chord pulsing on and off. Russ is nodding, so I guess I'm right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. At 3 minutes and 56 seconds, there's a swell in the string section. And here they mass and build up into a luminous texture. Lovely string writing at 4 minutes and 30 seconds onwards with layers of melody slipping under and around each other. There's a slow crescendo that reaches a climax at 5 minutes and 32 seconds. The material here is drawn out to maximize tension. Then at 5 minutes 52 seconds, we get a bit of a release with the timpani. At the 7 minute 31 second mark, the theme is back in the flute with the harp accompanying and the main material, the, the material heads toward the end with this figure, this harp, flute and harp theme. There's a low pizzicato, then a long pause, then two quiet, long, drawn out chords in the strings to end the movement. The fourth and final movement, Allegro Vivace. And the booklet notes describe this as an elaborate excursus, which is a digression, in the form of a recapitulation. Um, <laughs> I don't know what to make of that. Um, it returns to the opening movement and forte orchestra playing, uh, um, bringing the work full circle by ending it in the B minor it started in. 
anyway, what I heard <laughs> is that it starts with a bold fanfare and forte orchestral playing, featuring very present timpani, banging out the rhythmic marks as the orchestral sections take turns at the thematic the, 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 the thematic material. There's a bit of circling rhythm one would find in a folk dance, but this movement is written to be aggressive. The music decrescendos, and at two minutes we get a throaty contrabassoon, I think, leading us into the next waltzing section, the rhythm set by pizzicato strings as the orchestra plays the winding melody. At three minutes and 18 seconds, a new section starts with the descending melody played quietly, gradually crescendoing to something more emphatic and anxious, given the harmony. At the beginning of the fourth minute, there's a fantastic bass drum crash. Uh, tension builds up in the fourth minute, and suddenly the buildup gives way to a dance figure that starts moving rapidly, but it's soon swept away too. The music continues without pause, quickly changing from section to section, or small ensemble to small ensemble. We get another crescendo and a timpani roll into the sixth minute. Then everything quickly dissipates and we're in a spacious wasteland, with soloists shyly playing their lines alone. After a quiet clarinet line, the aggressive material comes back and heads to the opening, the ending chord, sorry. Uh, its ending timpani hits spectacularly registering in this excellent recording. I would say this album is a complete triumph. And I feel like um, uh, Mirga Grajinite Tila, Tila, the conductor, and Mishislav Weinberg, the composer, are like ideal sort of um, pairing for each other. Um, they, they really bring out the best in each other here. This is a spectacular album of Weinberg symphonies. I certainly hope that uh, Grajini Tetila is going to continue with these. The, the two we have so far are just fantastic. Uh, she seems to have a real affinity for them. They're easy to listen to in her hands, especially with such a dynamic recording. Um, if you like big boned orchestra works played by large forces, you really shouldn't miss this. The works are thrilling additions to the world symphonic repertoire and will reward repeated listening. This is music that should be more familiar to us all. The symphonies themselves have some fantastic harmonies and orchestration. They're very creative and not to be missed by any fan of orchestral music. This will be on my top uh, classical music albums of the year list at the end of the year. Absolutely. I'm not as enthusiastic about Weinberg yet as you are, but you've got me oh. listening to a lot of his music uh, these days. As 20th century European composers go, he's pretty easy mm -hmm. to listen to. Mostly, you know, tonal things and a lot of interesting colors. And you can follow along the logic in his compositions pretty well. That said, I think this recording, the string orchestra piece was kind of interesting, but I, I always want the full colors of the orchestra. So I was kind of mildly mm -hmm. interested in it, uh, though the performance is really great. The flute concerto, it was interesting to me in a way. Uh, I, I, oh, I enjoyed great. the flute playing. But this uh, third symphony, this is my favorite Weinberg so far. I wish I had started yeah. here. As a matter of fact, I would recommend if you haven't listened to any Weinberg yet, start with this. Uh, it's by yeah, good idea. far mm -hmm. the most melodic, interesting and rewarding listen so far. It's really rich in timbres. Uh, the whole orchestra is used you know, for all these tone colors, but it's also really mercurial and unpredictable. Uh, so it'll keep you on the edge of your seat, wondering what's going to happen next with constant changes and surprises. But I was really you know, drawn in with the 
rich melodic lines and uh, colors of this one. So this is my favorite work so far. Okay. Yeah, but they're still, he did over 20 symphonies, yeah. so there's a lot more to come. Well, I can also say from the different works we've listened to so far and things you've let me borrow, there's also, it's hard for me to really pin down his style. There's a lot of variety mm. in the types and approaches to his compositions too. So I can expect there to be a lot more surprises as we hear more of them. Yeah, I think with the uh, symphonies, he's writing for a Soviet audience and he had uh, the authorities' ears on them. Mm. They're not exactly like, you know, pandering to the, you know, the, to the crowd, but they're not really difficult and avant-garde either. But we heard the uh, solo violin works by, um, played by Guidon Kramer a few weeks ago, and those were really rough going. Yes. Now, but they're they're private works. They they could have been played by someone mm. on their own. So I think he could get away with a lot of this um, adventurous uh, composition style, the avant-garde style that he uses in those works. Mm. The, the Soviet Union kind of messed up a lot of uh, stuff. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Weinberg, I recommend it anyway. In jazz this evening, we're going to have... The German theme, as I mentioned. We are. And that's a first. Not that we haven't done German jazz before. And, well, our friend Jakovos, a Greek musician, is active in Germany. So if he left his home base to go there, there must be a pretty happening scene. And yeah. we've done a few German recordings. The most recent that uh, stood out for us was uh, Matthias Bublath with his right. uh, Orange Sea. That was just back in episode 84 called Cerebral Keys with his piano trio. That really knocked us out. Uh, we liked that yeah. recording a lot. And it was a lot I of fun. I even bought the CD. And I just noticed that I had a bunch of German jazz on uh, my listening list. So I thought, well, let's break out some. And it just so happened. It turns out that I picked all these really upbeat and rhythmic uh, recordings. And I think it's a a good mood of jazz this week. Yeah, he, he also knows that I'm listening to these at lunch at yeah. work and I'm kind of trying to get cheered <laughs> up. So if he gives me something really uh, downbeat, it's going to... I'm going to hear about it, yeah. You'll hear... That's not necessarily true, but I'll just make the rest of my day a little uh, cloudier, <laughs> let's say. Well, don't don't get on my bad side or I'll pick some real dark... Uh, yeah, uh, I'll have to be careful, I guess. Dark okay. jazz for you. <laughs> Anyway, this week is going to put you in a good mood, and especially the first one, because we're going to start out with some vibes. This is by Matthias Strucken on the Jazz Jazz label, and <laughs> I Loves good You, name. Porgy, to start it out. Yeah. And Strucken, born 1977, he studied at the Cologne University of Music and Dance, and he's had a, quite a successful career so far, playing with a lot of ensembles and groups in Germany. Uh, he's worked with artists such as Bill Ramsey, Paul Kuhn, Bobby McFerrin as well, and he's uh, played internationally. Mexico, South Korea, Belarus, Greece, Spain, Italy, mm. Hungary, uh, and many other places too. And now he currently resides in Cologne. And he's had this sort of uh, Milk Jackson project going for a while. Of course, Milk Jackson, the famous vibraphonist and the co-founder of the modern jazz quartet so you can get some of that influence uh, in his vibes playing uh, which is really fantastic and here he is uh, with this group uh, martin sasse who we're going to hear twice this evening just by 
accident because I didn't know he was on the other album. I had picked them just listening and I didn't know all the musicians' names, but uh, a fabulous piano player. Uh, on bass here, uh, Matthias Novak and on drums, Dominic Rob. We also have some guests, tenor sax, Paul Heller, uh, guitar, I think it's Yasko, it's with a J-O-S-C-H-O, maybe Yasko, Stefan, Jasko, okay. I don't know, yeah, and Alfonso Garrido on some additional percussion. And we're going to start out with an original tune by Strucken called Used to be Jackson. So I assume that's the <laughs> Milt Jackson reference Milt Jackson, there. Right, yeah. <laughs> this one starts out with a minor bluesy exchange of two bar lines between Sasse and the drums and bass, and then solo vibes from Sturken for an A section that repeats. Then there's some syncopated figures that exchange with ringing bass licks from Novak for a B section of the melody. Then we hear the A again. And then Sturken's off to a real swinging vibe solo. And you'll notice right away that this is a fabulous sounding recording, and the vibes yeah. really ring out. The, vi the vibes are just mic'd perfectly here. Really great sound. No, he has a beautiful touch too that yes. allows the sound to just ring out. You know, it's just fantastic. I really took to this right away. This solo uh, here swings really hard. Lots of speedy licks, mallets flying. Uh, he also throws in a quote from Softly as a Morning Sunrise uh, near the end of the solo. A little nice touch there. Yeah. And Sase follows with a piano solo. He gets a little more adventurous harmonically in comparison, but he keeps it really driving and bluesy. Some really great uh, left-hand low-note jabs to boom, and it's kind of uh, throwing those in. Uh, it's a really great piano solo. Mm. You're going to hear a lot of great piano from him this evening. Yeah, he, he was a real find for me too. Yeah. Hmm. And then Strucken throws in a little comic uh, minor uh, orientalism uh, in his line exchange at the end. You'll uh, pick up there. <laughs> uh, kind of cute. But a fine, fun swinging start. Uh, track two, another original by Strucken, Plunk. And uh, this one has a fun and funky gospel kind of beat to it. Strucken takes the melody on the vibes, adding in fun trills. It's got a 16-bar A section and then a 16-bar B section, then back to the A. Uh, he comes out into his solo with a trill, keeps things rhythmic and funky. Some really blazing mallet work in here, too. All kinds of figures, runs, repeated notes. Uh, it just sounds like he's got uh, more than two hands going there. Sase is yeah. next. Playful, bluesy solo. Some fun flourishes, chiming notes in there, too. And then they take it out with another run of the melody. There's another fun tune. Track three, another original by Stricken, Lockdown Lockup. Do you think any of these um these coronavirus, these pandemic uh, tunes are going to become standards? <laughs> <don't know>. That'd be <laughs> horrible <laughs> like 50 years from yeah, now. Oh, let's play Corona era tunes. Yeah. <laughs> on this one, uh, Paul Heller joins in on tenor sax. He takes the melody together with Stricken. Uh, the melody has bouncy syncopated riffs for the first and last sections, and then more of a driving swing uh, feel on the middle section. Strucken solos first over the steady walking bass of Novak. He has some rhythmic licks that I usually hear from uh, sax players, uh, like this kind of snappy rhythmic things. So you can tell he's got a lot of different you know, influences in his kind of jazz phrasing and lines. It's a really great sense of flow for a mallet instrument. Uh, Heller is next. He swings hard. He's got some fun gruffness with low notes and snarls on the sax. 
and Sase follows up with the lighter solo, this time showing off nice clean articulation in the upper piano register. We'll go through the melody once again and have a fun kind of tumbling ending to it. Then we're going to get our first non-original tune, and everyone will know this one, Ticket to Ride. Mm. Yeah, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, Beatles tune. It's got a drum intro, and they give it a shuffle feel. And here, uh, Yasko Stefan joins in on guitar on this tune, and he gets some bluesy jamming going over a vamp before he takes uh, the melody by himself there. Uh, he goes around again, has some fun double stop licks in it in that time. It's a very clean tone and finds good spots to add in little bluesy ideas. And Stefan continues right on into a solo. It's a lot of fun, tricky licks, cool articulation, uh, nice guitar playing. Strokin follows that with a rhythmic and bluesy vibe solo, uh, letting a wash ring out with the pedal midway through. It just sort of envelops you with the sound. Uh, he continues on with a B section of the melody, and then Stefan takes the final A section. And vibes and guitar get to jam out for a little more with some work song-like uh, licks from Stefan, the old uh, Nat Adderley. That kind of thing. <laughs> uh, track five, back to Strucken's, uh original, Bossa Rona. And this one's an upbeat mm. bossa tune that has a syncopated push in the third and fourth bars where the melody note stays the same, but the harmony shifts underneath. Rob has a light and clicky groove going on in here. Uh, there's a final section where Stricken really lets the vibes ring out too. And he continues on for a solo with more fast mallet work. Uh, Sase's next, featuring a lot of clear ringing high register lines, and they go around the melody again with a little drum flourish at the end. Then we've got the Gershwin tune, I Love You Porgy. Uh, this is a lush and ringing rubato with motion uh, for a solo vibes intro into a round of the melody uh, itself from Strucken. The trio join in with a steady ballad tempo just before a minute in uh, on the next section and then for another round. And here we get to see how lyrical Strucken can be on vibes and he adds in very tasty ornaments to the melody. Novak gets a bass solo with a warm tone and very relaxed phrasing. And Sase falls with a delicate piano solo with nice phrases that are spaced out. And Strucken returns with the melody in the extreme high register, sounding more like a glockenspiel here. And that goes into a music box-like pretty cadenza uh, before the final chords from Sase. Very nice, lovely touch to this great melody. We're going to get a West Montgomery tune that you've probably heard before, Rhodes Song. Uh, Jasko Stefan is back on guitar for this tune. It's got that clicky cruising groove, like I always call it, and it's it just fits road song uh, perfectly, right? <laughs> uh, Strucken and Stefan work the intro together. And Stefan takes the melody that features the trademark West Montgomery double stop style of playing. Uh, listen to the interplay and the little answer figures from Sase on piano. Uh, really tasty stuff. There's some conga added in for a nice little extra touch from Alfonso Garrido. Stefan carries on from the melody with a fluid solo featuring a lot of double stops and some really fast lines. Uh, we don't hear much from Sturken until in this point, just a few earlier backing ideas, but he's up for a solo next. Uh, the drums, percussion, and bass drop out, leaving him just over the funky, funky accompaniment of Sase uh, to start out the first section before they join in again. Then Stefan and Sturken work the intro vamp idea again, 
and then the, Stefan gets some more time to jam over it, and they stick with that jamming right to the end. Another stricken original then for track eight, Un Dia Bonito. Piano and vibes start together with a rubato working of the pretty original melody, and they hold and don't resolve to the expected final chord. Rather, Rob kicks it in lightly with a drum fill into a brisk samba tempo with a pulsing bass from Novak. Strucken takes over the melody, or takes the melody rather, over the clicky groove, and it sounds impossibly cheerful. Uh, Strucken gets an animated and melodic solo over nice backing from Sase, who follows, uh, starting out with rhythmic repeated note and then interval ideas. He includes a lot of rollicking rhythmic chord ideas. And then we get a drum and conga jam from Rob and Garrido. Strucken returns with more melody to take it to the end with a great ringing finish and some final drum fills. Uh, very happy, uh, happy, mm. nice day there. It is a dear bonito indeed. Beautiful day. <laughs> uh, and then we get uh, a Nat Adderley tune, actually. Uh, I mentioned work song before. Was a, here's a real tune from him called Sweet Emma. And Heller's back on tenor sax to take the melody of this funky gospely tune. He has sassy phrasing to match the mood and continues into an R&B infused solo with some nicely placed squawks and honks. Uh, Strucken builds nice melodic lines in his solo here, the sense of rhythmic snap in his licks. Uh, it modulates and lifts for a return of Heller's sax on the melody, and he ends it up with a fun descending line. Then we've got track 10, a tune by Ali Rubel, The Masquerade is Over. This one's a snappy drum brush intro from Rob, and then Strucken joins in with a swinging melody. Piano and bouncy bass join in, and things gel together nicely. Sase's up first for a fleet and swinging piano solo, and a great final line to it. And Strucken is next, and Novak switches from the bouncy bass to fast walking, giving it more drive for the vibe solo. Rob gets a chance to solo next with some tight stick work, cheered on by sections of the melody that come in from the others. And Strucken takes it through the melody once more. They ended up with some final vamping for Sase to get a few more licks. If you listen closely, right at the end, you'll hear a fun final bass gliss uh, after the last drum hits. <laughs> then we've got uh, a Nat Simon tune for the last tune, Poinciana. That's a nice even drum groove with toms to start it out. And Sase adds ringing chords with soft vibes trills in the background from Strucken. Sase takes the dreamy melody on piano. Then Novak has a great bass groove going on underneath. And Strucken surprises us here with a marimba solo on this tune. Uh, and it matches the really mellow mood because it's a kind of sparse tune. Uh, again, it's recorded really well to capture the woody tone of this instrument. Uh, Sase takes it through the melody again, and Strucken adds marimba fills along the way. Uh, it sounds like it's going to fade out, but they give it a cute ending of spaced out final chords uh, instead. So it's a fun and uplifting recording. Interesting covers of songs and really nice original tunes from Strucken. There's lots of swinging going on. There's some bluesy and gospel feels, a little bit of Latin and shuffle. And Strucken's a real mallet master. He's got loads of technique, but also a great swing feel and nice phrasing. And I really enjoyed Sase's piano playing. The guitar and sax guest spots from Heller and Stefan add nice variety. It's pretty much impossible not to like this record. Yeah, in fact, this is one of those records where 
<laughs> I was a, when I was on around track three or four, I was already searching online <laughs> to see if there was a CD available. Yeah. <laughs> I really liked it so much. I was like, oh, the rest of it's going to be this good too. And it was. The thing that really struck me about this album was just the, the fantastic timbres that every you know, the tone quality that everybody had, you know, the, mm. the vibraphones, you know, of course, I noticed, but piano and guitar too. And the pianist we're going to talk about a bit more uh, coming up, but uh, I really took to his playing a lot as well, as you had said you did. You know, I generally don't associate the words feel good music with German, but I might have to change that now. We have this kind of image of, of what would happen, especially especially in Germany and East Europe. But uh, this, no, this is fantastic, really uplifting, and I really want it in my collection. I liked it a lot. I hope we hear more. I always like to hear vibes, but I really like to hear really swinging vibes. And uh, Yeah, and th that's what we good. got here. How really about good. that? Yeah. I think my dad would like this. Should tell him about it. Um, yeah, it's got I'll that. Do it, I can. I mean, it's modern, but it has that old swing, swing spirit in it right. from the, right. the good old vibes days. And we're mm. going to get another one of our favorite instruments. I couldn't resist some Barry sax and actually a little bass clarinet too. But more on that yeah. later. Uh, this is called At Ease. It's also on jazz, jazz. And this is by the Marcus Bartlett Quartet. And hmm. Bartlett studied uh, jazz saxophone at the conservatory in Hilversum in the Netherlands. In 1994, he moved back to his Rhineland homeland. Since then, he's played with uh, Bob Brookmeyer's New Art Orchestra, Michael Herr and Lifelines, uh, and also in the Lionel Hampton All-Star Celebration Band, alongside uh, Jason Marsalis, Pee Wee Ellis, uh, Red Holloway, and others. And he's played a, a lot of uh, radio big bands in Germany. And uh, his debut CD as a leader was Happy Weeks in 2002 in the quintet with uh, trumpeter Rolf Hesse. And uh, let's see, he's got some other recordings. 2010, he had uh, Into the Blue, also with Martin Sasse, who we're going to uh, hear on this recording. And then the recording Monk in a duo with Sase that was uh, out in December 2016. And now this record, At Ease, came out in September. It's been on my list waiting to work into a program. And just wow. this week, on the 18th, a new duet with Sase is out called Still Here. <laughs> so oh, wow. If you like this pianist and uh, saxophonist, you can hear them as a duo. I, I really want to listen to this uh, recording soon. So we've got Marcus Bartlett on Barry and bass clarinet, Sase again on piano. We've got Martin Jaganowski on bass and Just Van Schaik on drums. And one other guest on one track, Oscar Homer on cello. So we start out with the title track, a Bartlett original, At Ease. And in that spirit, it's a properly loping, lazy melody. <laughs> And uh, Bartlett mm -hmm. and Jakonowski take the lead, our first 16 bars of the 32-bar melody with just berry and bass. Nice combination. And you hear Bartlett's warm tone, just a hint of edge on his sound. Uh, drums and piano join in for the second half, and then Bartlett comes out of that for a break to a solo. Uh, he starts it out leisurely, but he gets another break before they go around again, and Jaganowski switches up from the bouncy bass he's been doing to walking, and it gets more swing drive. Bartlett blows out some more double-time lines, but he still keeps a laid-back feel uh, until the end. Sase's up next. 
he goes for a playful approach here with some great left-hand running figures and uh, digging in and chiming chords. Uh, Jaganowski gets a bass solo next with a huge woody sound and a nice snap in his lines. And they all take it through the loping tune once more to finish it out. Track two is another Bartlett original called The Fox. And this is a great down and dirty groove on this tune. Uh, the trio sets it up with an eight bar intro uh, with digging bass from Jaganowski. Bartlett takes the minor bluesy melody that has extended phrase lines. Count out the phrase lengths. It's a little bit uh, goes on be beyond what uh, you normally find in the form, but it's cool. The B section has a few interesting harmonic twists and Bartlett gets really soft for a bit. Sase comes out with a bluesy break into a rhythmically and harmonically adventurous piano solo, but it also has some great little bluesy figures in it. And Bartlett's soloing next there. He's uh, swinging hard on this one. He blows a lot of smooth double-time lines, digging way down in the low range. It'll push your woofers a bit uh, when that big yeah. berry starts blowing. Uh, he ties it into mm. another round of the melody with some repeats of the last phrase, for some final Barry thoughts over drum fills. This is a great tune. Hmm. Track three, another original by Bartlett, Bruise Cruise. That's hmm. Brew, apostrophe S. I don't know who Brew is. Uh, could be the old tenor player, Brew Moore. I don't know. Van Schaik starts it out with some drum fills. Bartlett blows the boppy melody lines over stop time figures from the trio. And there's some tricky syncopation happening in the last section of the melody into a furious swing for Bartlett uh, to get right into his solo. He has really good agility on the big horn, fine sense of melody and phrasing, even when he's playing at fast tempos like this. Sase follows with a solo of high register, right hand ideas, crazy trills and percussive chords. And Von Scheich gets drum solo then into a final round of the melody and a nice little fill before the end of the tune. Another original from Bartlett for track four, In the End. It's a very slow ballad, and Bartlett gets to show off his softer side here. And he can play really softly uh, as he demonstrates with nice dynamics on this melody. Sase comes out with a little gospel tinge into a solo. It shows off his soft touch too, little cascading right-hand figures. Bartlett's solo is relaxed feeling, but he has a lot of smooth double time lines as well. Jaganowski gets a bass solo with the rhythmic variety and notes that really ring out. And Bartlett takes a final soft blow through the melody to end it up. Track five, we're going to get uh, one of the all-time great sax players, Al Cohn's tune, The Wallen Boat. This is a fun swinging melody with Barry and bass in unison over tight brushwork from Von Scheich. Sase joins in with syncopated chords on the B section and continues on from there. Uh, there's a final section of the melody that builds the tension, and Jaganowski comes out of that with a killer bass lead into a solo. The groove turns tight and funky at that point under him. Uh, he really digs in with rhythmic bluesy licks. They play the final melody section to build into a solo from Bartlett, and he starts it out smooth but gets more funky as he goes with some low growling dives. And one more lead-in section... Uh, from that melody to a funky, bluesy, and playful solo from Sase. Uh, they take it once more through the bass and Barry melody to end it up. Back to a Bartlett original for track six, Remembrance. I really liked this tune. It's a 6-8 hmm. minor ballad with an easy flow. Uh, Sase sets the mood with ringing chords, and Bartlett has relaxed phrasing on the downward flowing lines of the melody. Uh, Bartlett works his solo into a a real slow burn of intensity with flowing lines. 
Sasse has dancing lines and bluesy hints and some harmonic diversions in his solo, and Van Schaik pushes him uh, with drum fills nicely. And Bartlett comes back for another run through the melody, and then he continues on with some softly smoldering improvisations. So it's a ballad, but it has some intensity in the chord changes. The harmonies suggest something, you know, it's called remembrance. I don't know what it's in remembrance of, but you can get a feeling of something strong through the, uh, the musical sense created here. Track seven, Uzume's Dance. This is also a Bartlett original. We get a little Japanese cultural reference here. Yeah. Yeah. So Uzume was uh, one of the gods, right, who uh, coaxed the sun goddess out of her cave with a dance. And so uh, there's a whole tale about that. You can look that up. Um, hmm. There's some sort of uh, maybe not not uh, safe for public uh, references about what kind of dance it was, but uh, <laughs> we, but anyway, uh, it's kind of an interesting reference. Jaganovsky gets it going with some funky bass lines over the even subdivided groove of Van Schaik's hi hat for an eight bar intro. Sase adds chords on the repeat. Then Bartlett joins in with the kind of flitting syncopated melody licks uh, that are doubled by Sase. Then there's a contrasting slow and smooth waltzing section before it transitions into a blazing 4-4 swing and a solo from Sase, starting with some repeated uh, notes. There's a lot of changes in uh, in mm. uh, rhythm and meter here. Uh, he shows off some great technique here with rapid lines and intense modal improvised ideas, transitioning smoothly into the flowing waltzing section. And Bartlin's up next uh, out of the gate with a furious swing, getting some great low digs in between fast lines and licks. Van Schaik gets a drum solo after that, mixing it up busily around the kit. They take it through the melody once more, with Bartlett coming out of the waltzing section with a final improvisation over the modal sections to the end. Yeah, an interesting tune with lots of change-ups uh, in meter and uh, feels. We're going to end up with uh, a tune by Gary McFarland. Does the sun really shine on the moon? And hmm. McFarlane's kind of an interesting figure. He was a composer, arranger, vibraphonist, pianist. A lot of work that uh, came out in the 50s and 60s. And uh, he had a kind of a strange ending. He died from a lethal dose of liquid methadone that he drank at a bar, bar <laughs> Bar 55 at uh, 55 Christopher Street in Greenwich Village. But it's not known if he drank it on purpose or someone spiked his drink with it. Uh, oh and the police did not investigate. And so he came to an end. An abrupt, yeah, end, abrupt end, end at age 38. <laughs> so uh, anyway, he did leave a lot of uh, good tunes. And this one was recorded by Zoot Sims uh, before I remember. This is a treat on this tune because Bartlett switches to bass clarinet. And he's joined by Oscar Homer on cello. They take it as a very slow ballad, and Sase plays with a really soft, ringing intro. Uh, Bartlett has a very pure clarinet sound on bass clarinet on the melody here. It's almost liquid sounding. Homer joins in on the repeat of the A section and then takes the lead on the B section in the high register of the cello. It's a really lovely timbre blend cello and bass clarinet. Uh, Bartlett takes a pure tone bass clarinet solo, and Sase has a lovely light solo of delicate right-hand lines with a great sense of touch. 
Chakanovsky follows with a soft and lazily moving bass solo that matches the mood perfectly. Then Homer leads it back in uh, for another soft dance with Bartlett's clarinet to a very pretty ending. And that's it. I really enjoyed this recording. Great berry playing from Bartlett. Effortless swinging. Uh, his original tunes are all fun and interesting with a lot of variety, running from pretty to pretty funky. Uh, there's more classy piano on this recording from Sase. Mm. Fine ringing bass uh, sounds from Jaganovsky. Yeah, uh, really nice berry playing and uh, great swinging here. So I'm going to go check out that other album right away. I thought so too. And like in a in an album featuring the baritone sax, I'm just really listening to the sax. But even with that sound on the album, Martin Sass is playing. Um, it really stood out for yeah. me. I really, that was really my main draw on this record. Mm. I really liked hearing him. And the baritone sax, of course, was just a fantastic thing too. Um, Uzume's Dance, by the way, you mentioned that. That was a fantastic track, I thought. I thought it was really uh, th- thrilling. It's just rhythmically wild, yeah. Yeah. Um, as would befit, I guess, Uzume's Dance. I mean, how else are you going to get right. a Matarasu out of her cave? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's got those cool like modal sections in it um, where it gets right. really modern yeah. sounding. Yeah. Yeah. And the opening two tracks on this really knocked me out, too. So I was into it right away. Mm. Eddie's and The Fox. So those are good uh, sampling points yeah. for listeners who want to hear this. Um, yeah, the whole album was really great. It was There was a lot of variety on it. I think I like those more upbeat tracks the best. And overall, the album is pretty sunny. Again, mm-hmm. something I wouldn't associate you know, with what I used to think about uh, you know Germany. But uh, wow, these guys are, they got it going yeah. on. I yeah. really enjoyed this. Yeah. Well recorded too. I should mention yeah, really that. Really great sound. Great as great well. Sound. Yeah. So uh, I, guess, I guess we should expect that from uh, yeah. German engineering. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Both both albums we've heard so far, we just sounded fantastic. Yeah. All right, we're gonna finish up now. When I hear Guido, <laughs> I'm usually thinking of someone from Staten Island or Brooklyn. You know. <laughs> Oh, who could that yeah. be? <laughs> but no, uh, here we're going to get uh, a very well-known uh, German drummer, Guido May. And uh, he is actually from Bad Reichenhall, Bavaria, Germany. And he studied classical piano for eight years before he switched over to drums. And after high school, he moved to Munich and he had his first concerts and recordings with Peter O'Mara, Adrian Mears, uh, Johannes Enders, and some others. Uh, in 1996, he played with uh, kind of funk icon Pee Wee Ellis, a great sax man from James Brown uh, days, and that included a European tour. And so he became uh, kind of associated with the kind of funk style uh, there. And from 97 to 2000, played with a lot of uh, famous names, Mose Allison, uh, Diana Kroll, Claudio Roditi, Jay Ashbury, Bob Berg, Bobby Shue. I think Pee Wee Ellis died uh, last year, but he was uh, still doing concerts and tours with him. Also, Joey DeFrancesco, Larry Coriel. He gets around. <laughs> I got a whole page of uh, people who he's played with, uh, and so if you want, uh, you know that funky jazz sound, uh, it seems like Guido May is the guy to call. And this album has got uh, lots of funkiness to it. It does. Got <laughs> May on drums, Marco Churnchitz on piano, Jure Jure Pukel J U R E. Europe Pukel, I guess. Pukel, I don't yeah, know. On tenor sax and Amin Salim 
on bass. And we're going to get an interesting collection of tunes, starting out with the Cole Porter classic, Love for Sale. Now, this got a really funky eight-bar <laughs> bass and drum intro, but don't be funked out. Listen very carefully, because I want you to yeah. realize this is in a seven-beat meter. Wow. So I guess it's like seven-eight. You know, if you were thinking of like a double time four four with the you know eight beat feel, but you don't have that last beat, uh, so it's very unusual. Yeah, it always sounds like a hiccup to me. Like exactly. Something. Um, yeah. the, mm. the meter gives it an interesting push forward, so you'll notice there's something different. Um, anyway, it gets this funky start. Uh, Pukel comes in with the famous melody everyone knows. He's got a really tart tone on this one. Uh, Churnchitz has some excellent funky accompaniment on piano underneath there. Uh, and he comes out first with a solo, uh, but trades off eight bar phrases with Pukel, uh, both of them playing really intensely over this killer groove going on here. Uh, they go through another round of the melody and finish it off with some extra funky bass and drums from Salim and May together. Track two. You know this is going to be funky because it's called The Chicken. <laughs> this is a peewee <laughs> Ellis tune. Uh, a long intro from May showing off some tight snare dexterity here. Salim joins in eventually with a rising ostinato bass line. Pukel comes in with a bluesy melody that has some fun harmonic twists and pauses in it uh, all over the intense and subdivided beats from May. Uh, they go around twice and Pukel continues into a funky solo with lots of bluesy rhythmic licks. And he goes on and on, uh, but they lock in nicely together on the synchronized uh, and syncopated descending figures from the melody uh, sort of as a touch point. Uh, they take it through the melody again uh, and have some fun with the ending, adding fun pauses while Pukel honks it out to the final descending line. Yeah, those of you uh, doctoral students out there looking for a thesis subject might want to try to connect. What is the connection between funkiness and chickens? I'd like to know. <laughs> I, know, I yeah. would read that thesis. Mm. So go write yeah, it, go somebody. Ahead. I'm not doing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got uh, track three, a tune by Charles Fambro, Dolores Carla Maria. This one's a bossa beat ballad with a breezy eight-bar intro. Pukel takes the pickup notes into the melody, showing off a more airy tone on this one. It's got kind of a floating melody to it. And Salim has some really nice bass pulses going on into the break for Pukel to start his solo, and then he gets a nice pulsing bass groove underneath. Pukel uses a lot of short, bird-like fluttering phrases uh, with nice agility through his solo here. And Churnchitz follows with a solo of clear right-hand articulation, a light touch in the upper register and chiming chords. They go around the melody once more to finish it out with some final fluttering tones from Pukel. Uh, Caravan's a tune that's uh, old jazz standard. Awan Tizol, Duke Ellington, and Irving Mills. But of course, they're going to give it a super funky <laughs> bass and drum groove <laughs> on an eight-bar intro here. Interestingly, you know, you usually hear the melody line, doo, 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 like on really long legato notes, but Pukel gives it a like a clipped phrase approach to match this funky feel. That leaves extra space, and Churnchitz adds lots of cool, funky fills on piano. Uh, they give a surprising break on the middle section uh, and give it a Cuban feel, with some fun <laughs> Latin uh, Cuban-y piano from Churnchitz. Pico solos first, starting over just the drums and bass. Churnchitz joins back in, 
uh, from the middle Latin section. And Puko gets a few rounds enjoying the groove uh, before Churnchets gets a go and has some speedy runs between more percussive ideas in his solo. Puko joins back in from the middle melody section and they dismantle it with <laughs> interplay, <laughs> taking it softly uh, to the end. A uh, cool version of a classic tune. We're going to get a monk tune, uh, Evidence, Thelonious Monk, that is. Uh, this one swings away from the start with very clean ride cymbal work from May. Uh, Puko takes the quirky, syncopated monk melody notes that work against the kind of rhythmic, bouncy chords that Churnchets has going on. And Salim breaks out first with a snappy bass solo. Churnchets has a swinging solo, capturing some monkish chord hits on the way. And Puko follows up with a hard swinging tenor solo, getting some higher squawks in when he ties his solo back to the melody. And along the way, you get to enjoy a lot of tasty fills from May, tight toms and assorted clicks are around the kit. So uh, a little more classic jazz, uh, boppy kind of thing here. Track six, uh, Donald Brown's theme for Malcolm. This one has a very unique Latin groove to it. Uh, after a tom pickup, May lays down a cricky, clicky groove, and there's a great overlay of like pulsing syncopated piano from Churnchitz and a zigzaggy bass and left-hand piano that are synced uh, for an intro. So there's all these rhythms crossing uh, over each other. And then Pucal comes on top of that with the melody uh, that goes from kind of a clipped note opening to more legato phrases that smooth out the feel. So there's all kinds of rhythmic things going on here. Uh, the, the B section of the melody changes up to a more straight samba feel, and then hmm. uh, extended syncopated phrases in lines that build up the tension. Churnchets has a tasty low piano fill before they hit the A section again, and they go around once more, and Pico gets a solo first, floating his phrases skillfully over these constantly changing rhythms. Churnchitz is next for some tasty two-handed chord ideas to start before some fleeter high right-hand lines in his solo. And then they vamp out on the intro groove for May to have some drum time. And he works tight and fast figures around toms and snare uh, with cymbal splashes sprinkled in. Uh, once more around the melody to finish things up with a final lift on the syncopated line and a couple piano chimes that ended up. We got a composition that's credited to all the members of the band. This might be kind of something they just made up on the spot in the studio because mm. it has a very spontaneous kind of feel to it. It's a ballad for Jure Puko, the sax player. A delicate start with light cymbals from May and sparse bass notes and piano figures. Jure blows soft and airy uh, melody phrases on this one. The, and the piano and bass are kind of flowing quite freely. You can get a sense of time from May's light cymbal, but it's kind of amorphous in the bass and piano. Uh, Salim develops a bit more as it goes on through a pulse in his bass ideas, but before it gels any more than that, it starts to evaporate into a soft ending. It's only uh, 2 minutes and 37 seconds long, but it's a pretty little ballad interlude. And we're going to get Din Don Dan. It's a tune by uh, Pee Wee Ellis, Guido May, and Sheikh Lowell. May plays an 8-bar intro 
of a straight groove with clicks and toms, Pucal plays the minor modal sounding theme phrases over some really funky syncopated piano and bass figures underneath. The next sections of the melody is a blazingly fast swing section with Salim walking the bass furiously to May's fleet cymbals and a contrasting slow legato sax line. It goes back to the groove section for a syncopated and chiming start to a piano solo from Churnchitz. He gets some more zippy lines, really complicated rhythmic things going on. Then he burns it up on the fast swing section, some really great piano playing and soft backing lines added from Pucal. May gets a solo next, working off the initial groove and getting more complex with impressive technique. The others join in with some syncopated phrases to cheer him on at the end. And then we're going to get track nine. We're going to end up the recording with Let Go. This one begins with fast cymbals and syncopated bass figures that create a groove for some meandering piano ideas and out-of-bounds sax harmonics and doodles from Pucal uh, that make an intro. But don't worry, because things are about to get funky with a bluesy oh stop-time melody of sax and bass exchanges and then a hard, swinging, contrasting B section. After a repeat of the A section, Pucal is off for a hard-swinging solo, over the percussive minor chords of Churnchitz. He works it up into some great shrieks of angst, and then Churnchitz keeps up the intensity with a high-energy piano solo with racing lines, more percussive chords, and rhythmic teases. They take it through the melody again, and then this time May gets some final solo time over the middle section of the melody before ending it up. So it's an energetic and exciting recording. If you want some funk in your jazz tunes, May is the man to call. He's got the unique subdivided grooves for every occasion. But of course, he's also really good at driving swing with really impressive technique and ideas in his solos. It's an interesting mix of tunes, all with unique and mostly funky grooves, but rounded out with some Latin and a little ballad in there too. Uh, the rest of the players, uh, Salim bass, uh, rocks and locks tied in with May for the grooves. <laughs> I like Chernchitz's piano playing as well. He had a lot of exciting solos. And Pucal's sax can be tender or intense and gruff. Uh, nice range there too. So I, I like this recording. It's it's energetic. It's a drummer's record um, yeah. for the grooves. And I think this would be a good one, a uh, good study for any up-and-coming drummers to listen to a guy who can break down th those beats into you know all those interesting subdivisions and uh, players who can gel with that. So, yeah, really interesting. Right. When you think of the, uh, like the great drummers in jazz who, you know, you usually think of like a lot of the great players who came out of their bands because they, they're sort of like providing the rhythm and these guys get this sort of groove to, to solo over. Um, but in this case, like Guido May, because he's playing all these funky beats, you've always kind of got an ear on him while yeah. everybody else is playing. Yeah. It's, it's a really interesting to, a way to keep yourself, uh, yeah. You notice that he's really interesting that way. So I, I found myself, you know, being drawn towards him a lot. Yeah. Uh, but all, all of the solos, soloing on this was great too. And mm -hmm. you got to wonder who's going to come out of this, if anybody. Yeah. Slick rhythms, good playing, some ballads as well for variety. And uh, yeah, I enjoyed this too. I mean, these are three really uh, upbeat albums. Yeah. Yeah. Really yeah. rhythmic. It's interesting when you hear like uh, uh, the Brazilian drummer, uh, who he did his uh, recording, uh, Cosmopolista, Mario Gaiata. Right. I mean, right. that album, you just, the drums are so well recorded. <laughs> right. <laughs> you can tell every cymbal <laughs> is captured perfectly. And, um, right. you know, here the drums 
stand out and he gets everything, you know, you get that groove in your head for almost every tune when it gets going. So, um, mm. yeah, just, uh, you get a different perspective when you have a drum as a leader, but I liked it. Yeah. Very upbeat. Yeah. 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 So fantastic. There you go. Yeah. German jazz. Uh, we'll hear more of it. Yeah. Maybe we'll do another German let's, episode. Let's hope so. Yeah. So that was all uh, good fun. Uh, for this week and uh next week we're gonna be stringing it along i think <laughs> i think we yeah. are on the low end that is you've got on the low end you've got the low cello end of the recordings spectrum and i got old cello recordings next week yeah and that's always welcome yeah. people like the cello a lot i'm kind of surprised at how many people like when you ask what their favorite instrument is if they don't say the piano in classical music they'll say the cello it's not that it's voice of fans. quality to it you know it's yeah. warm and I'm going to go lower than you. I'm going all bass Ooh. next week. So, He's going to limbo. Yeah, how low can you go? <laughs> the bass there goes as low yeah. as you can go. All bass recordings, two of which are new, just came out this week. So hot Get your subwoofers ready, people. Yeah. This would be a good week to buy a subwoofer, by the way, if you're in the market. Don't wait till Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Don't wait till Christmas, yeah. I know your you neighbors know, early. Which, <laughs> yeah, speaking of which, um, the Christmas season is almost upon us, but for me, a very special day is coming up. Tuesday, November 22nd, is St. Cecilia's Day. She's the patron saint of music. Mm. And uh, if you're listening to our podcast, you probably love music, so you want to might want to just uh, raise a glass to St. Cecilia and uh, all musicians on that day. Sounds like a good idea. I think I will. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so that you right. got to look forward to next week. As always... Later in the day after this podcast is published, we'll have the playlist up on Deezer and there'll also be a link to that on our Facebook mm. page if you want to check out the cello and bass tunes early before you listen to next week's podcast. Well, as always, we want to give thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. And as I said, uh, check out those other podcasts. They'll be in the bottom of the description Tom Gauker's Something Came From Baltimore, uh, Neon Jazz and Interviews and The Same Difference. And we hope you enjoyed episode 90, getting closer to 100, mostly yeah. made in Germany. Mostly. mostly we're going to call it that, mostly <laughs> yeah, made in exactly. Germany. That's a good name. Okay, I like it. It's a little jokey. And well, we won't get to 100 until 2023, but before then we'll have our Christmas episode coming up in a couple of weeks. Then we'll have the... Oh, we got the Christmas episode, yeah. right? And then we're going to have our best of the year, best which is going to land on uh, Christmas right Day, as we there, said, yeah. or the day after, yeah. depending on where you are in the world. Right. So... Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, then we our first episode of the New Year is going to be on January 1st or 2nd, depending on where you are in the world, too. Yeah. So. so it'll be a musical holidays, a good way to ring out the old and bring yeah. in the new. So Let's hope so. I noticed that a lot of people are listening to our uh, last year's Christmas yeah. <laughs> episode because yeah. we, we got a sudden like uh, like uh, more downloads yeah, on that, that episode. And the thing is, we would do the new Christmas episode uh, now, but uh, the the records I want to release, listen to, have just been released. Yeah. So I don't I haven't really heard them yet. Not only that, it's too early in the year, and uh, we'll we'll talk about our strictness as for our rules for listening to Christmas music. I think uh, maybe that on that episode. episode. Yeah. Yeah. It's just mm. suffice it to say it's too early for me yet. So, it's too early. Yeah. That's basically what it is. I'll be I'll be burnt out and humbugging <laughs> right. even before we get into the Christmas season if I start now. So Yeah. yeah. If by the way, if you're one of these people 
who listens to Christmas music in July, you're you're banned from listening to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you have, you don't have any taste. There it is. There's a there's a time for everything. Even ragas in in India are played at certain times of the day. So you gotta listen to this music your at bio, the proper time. Your bio rhythms are messed up. So yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, we'll see you for episode 91 next week. And uh, until then, keep listening. Gerald Albright, Maria Schneider, Charlie Hunter, Duke Robillard, Sean Jones, Walter Beasley, Steve Swallow. Something Came From Baltimore is a jazz, blues, and R&B podcast and radio show, and it's not really about Baltimore. Subscribe to the podcast and listen to your favorite artist or future favorite artist. That's something came from Baltimore. And be a part of that Be More music scene. Joe Lovano, Jeff Coffin, Paula Cole, Denuso Makatani, Ann Passio, Chess Smith, Thumbscrew, mostly. <laughs>